So you owe me big time, you guys. Long ago, in a galaxy far, far away, Star Wars toys began. And Kenner continues the excitement. The Empire Strikes Back collection. El Regreso del Jedi. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to the Star Wars Collector's Archive Podcast. It's Kivecast. First that Star Space Station with a snap open space hatch. Sometimes known as the Vintage Pod. Wow, what a weird place. A monthly audio magazine dedicated to vintage Star Wars toys and memorabilia. Hosted by Sky Payne, Fudd, Chewbacca, and Steven B. Denton. B-Wing fighters and B-Wing pilot action. B-Wing pilot action. B-Wing pilot action. B-Wing pilot action. Market data mined by Brisbane Brisbane Mike. Luke Skywalker handles his saber well. And Fratastic Pete. Boba Fett has a see-through helmet. Tech support by the low ones. For the first time. Steve and Sky are joined by Stephen J. Sansweet, who comes on to celebrate the 24th anniversary of his book, From Concept to Screen to Collectible, the foundational document of the vintage Star Wars collecting hobby. Ron Salvatore joins our conversation to discuss its impact on him and other mega collectors and Cincinnati Raiders of the early 1990s. Chris Gullius joins us to discuss the Klimko sales, the resurgence of Blue Harvest, and the Mailer Sampler Fet with the 70th Vintage Paw. Wampa Wampa! Welcome to Codcast number 70. Number 70, Steve. So, this is the beginning of our seventh year. Is that right? Yeah. That's that's nuts. Yeah. yeah. Six full years in the books. We started this in, whatever, January, February 2010. Yep. And we're, we're here. And it's actually going to be a, a an episode of strange uh, anniversaries. Uh, it's very <laughs> exciting. We're going to talk to Steve Sansweet about his book uh, from uh, concept to screen to collectible, which came out in 1992. So right. we're celebrating its 23rd 24th anniversary. I, I have to say, when I first got that email, I, I couldn't remember if I saw the word anniversary in there and completely got confused or what. I'm like, well, no, no, that would be our way. We, we celebrate weird numbers. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you know, we're Star Wars collectors, right? So yeah. the most important numbers to us are like 21, 65, and 12. Exa- exactly. Yeah. Um, but... Uh, <laughs> The funny thing is, the reason that we... So I've been talking to Steve about this for since Seattle in 2013, mm-hmm. whatever yeah. it was. And, um, you know, basically, I'm, I, obviously, I think we're all... Well, not all of us, but some of us are kind of starstruck around him because he's such a big figure in, in, in collecting in general, it just in Star Wars, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I was really happy that I came up with this idea of, like... Because I knew Ron loved his book from Concept to Scream to Collectible, and it was important yeah. to him. So I would go through Ron to get to him, so that way I wouldn't feel too embarrassed to like ask him to interview. And, <laughs> and so he was totally like, "Yeah, that sounds great. Let's do it." But then, like, I just still never quite had the nerve. Yeah. So fortunately, Steve, you've had a complete technological breakdown. I've kept this a secret from everybody. <laughs> I, I'm like, you know. I'm like a, a pilot or something who's 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 been keeping it a secret that one of the landing gears doesn't work. Exactly, that's the exact situation. One of the twin pods was uh, malfunctioning. <laughs> yes. So if you've ever seen us record a show live, uh, you see that we use this product called Blue, which is a microphone, and it's not professional. It doesn't have one of those little weird windscreens on it. Right. It's just a weird. It looks like an old iPod. Yeah, and, uh, looks like the like torture device on the Death Star, like yeah. it's a little yeah, Doctor Ball, right? And uh, and so Steve got a new computer two months ago, and and it stopped working. Mm-hmm. And so 
for all of you space freaks out there, you've noticed that we've released like eight episodes in the past two months. But <laughs> one of which I was completely on the phone. <laughs> right. One of them, he was on the phone. Another, it was like an old episode. Um, so it's just been kind of weird. So next month, we're going to get back to our regular style Kivecast. Right. Um, we're going to finally talk to Grant Criddle from the Vintage Rebellion about uh, about the TIE pilot. Um, unfortunately, we're too late to talk to Joe Iglesias about bootlegs to, to push the Outer Realm book. Um, but hopefully that'll make its Kickstarter. Um, I, I, uh, I hope you don't mind, Steve. I, I donated $500 in our name. <laughs> so if it, if it makes, you owe me 250 bucks. Okay. Uh, I meant All to right. ask you beforehand. <laughs> but uh, if not, then – because if you spend that much, then you, you get an advertisement. So if you don't want to kick in, Steve – I'll just put a picture of a Chewbacca figure and I'll say Kivecast. Listen to Sky. <laughs> yeah, no. I think I think that was safe to assume I'd be with you. <laughs> okay. Um Yeah, so Steve finally got when did you get your microphone? Okay, so well the the whole problem started with this computer which I had just been riding until it's like an old car. I had just really was trying to ride it till the end and uh, it finally just wouldn't load without being in safety mode. It's like, well, maybe Skype will still work. And so I tried it for that that episode we were talking about. There was the, the Force Awakens reaction show, and I just could not get the thing to work. So I'm like, all right, well, I'll have to get a new computer. So I got a new computer, plugged in the, uh, the old uh, Snowball, and it just didn't recognize it at all. So I tried downloading patches, and all of a sudden nothing was working. So it, it turns out, I guess, any Snowball manufactured before, before a certain date just doesn't work with anything current. So mm. I'm like, well, I like the Snowball. I, I'd, I'd like to get another one. And I was just like praying that the next one I got would work. So I finally got it the other night, plugged it in, and it recognized it and i'm like oh thank god <laughs> yeah so yeah yeah it's been it's been rough so I, I apologize to you for for kind of being on the outs in that sense but hopefully we're we're back in business <laughs> well you know buying the microphone is basically buying microphone and skype time is essentially the only cost of this podcast besides yes the right. countless hours that we don't do <laughs> um so if you're a space freak and a fan of the show uh buy buy steve a drink because he has to buy a new <laughs> microphone okay no no <laughs> That's it was overdue, <laughs> uh, but uh, it's, it's actually fun. I'm recording in a new location, Steve. Really, new studio, huh? Well, um, I'm actually uh, I'm recording in my in my girlfriend's house. Oh, and I told her that I would mention that, and, and I told her that of course, what do we call all girlfriends on the show? Well, lady friends, right? right. She's not my special lady. She's my lady friend. I'm just helping her conceive, man. <laughs> I, I said lady friends, and she got really mad. She's like, she's she's not the first one to get mad about. That. She's like, don't call me lady friend. I'm like, you know, Steve's lady friend said the same thing. <laughs> What's wrong with lady friend, Steve? I don't know. I think because we're such big like Lebowski fans, it's right. not that that's the connection for us. So maybe, maybe, maybe not such a great general use term. I don't know. She said, you know, that you're a feminist because I'm a feminist. She's like, think like a woman and figure out why you would like it. And I can't figure it out because I <laughs> only hear Jeff Bridges. Yeah. She's not my lady friend, man. I'm just helping her to conceive. Like, I can't think of it. She's not my special lady. She's my lady friend. I'm just helping her conceive, man. So I am not in my lady friend's house. I'm in right. my girlfriend's house. Okay. All so, right. 
anyways, it's uh, it's pretty crazy. We've had this insane snowstorm. I've had this kind of weird long day. And it is uh, it was eighty eight degrees. I am in my sweat box right now. <laughs> oh, wow, it's crazy. But all of that is a long way of saying yes. this is not going to be a normal episode. No, uh, we're not going to have a sky coup. We're not going to have a flip the script. We're not going to have a uh, market watch. It's actually just going to be two interviews. Um, so the idea is that um, I'm not even going to have a random thought about Force Awakens, Steve. <laughs> even though you've now seen it uh, seven you know times. Uh, yeah, I have. I figured that that's. I just realized it's the most I'd ever seen any movie in the theater, and then that, that kind of freaked me out a little bit. But oh, wow. I don't know. I, I like it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> Very eloquent, Mr. Danley. Yeah, thank you. All right, so then let, let's introduce this. Okay. So basically, if you don't know, in 1992, there was a book released uh, by Chronicle Books. And as you'll learn in the interview, uh, it was the first ever book about Star Wars collectibles ever written. And it's written by Stephen Sansweet, uh, Stephen J. Sansweet. And uh, in talking to like Gus and Ron and Chris Joglulius, I sort of learned that this was sort of like their Bible or their Rosetta Stone or their, this was sort of the thing that started them off collecting. Right. Not, well, not necessarily started them collecting, but like helped to sort of give form to it. Right. Well, this, the, the mindset that the book kind of, you know, not intentionally like displays, but it's what comes from it. We'll get into it, but yeah. Right. Yeah. Basically like process collecting and sort of, yeah, we'll get into it when we see it, but the fact that it was this important it made me realize, hey, everybody talks to Steve Sansweet about Rancho Obi-Wan, which is great. Everyone should join and go visit. And everyone should appreciate the videos that he makes and the fact that you know he's, this, he's the face of Star Wars collecting. But here's this one book that I just – we should be talking about. And especially now as everything becomes all Facebook and everything becomes all shattered and talk about centralized, this was when there was one book. They mm -hmm. had this information. You know, this is where people learned what a first shot was. People learned what a hard copy was. This was three years even before the Star Wars Collector's Archive went online. Right, know? right. Um, this is really the, the beginning the, point. the genesis, yeah of, yeah, of that whole realm of collecting. Steve, I know there's a word for it that would be good to indicate the beginning of something. <laughs> but I don't know why I can't figure out the metaphor. Because touchstone doesn't work. No. Uh, Big Bang is stupid. And my dad, my dad hates the Big Bang and doesn't believe in the Big Bang. It's a whole thing. <laughs> um, there should be some like I, I call it the Alpha at one point, but yeah, that, that makes it seem like it's the best. I mean, like it's the beginning. Um, it's the episode one of collecting books. No. Oh no! See that? Yeah. No, that wouldn't go well. <laughs> That's funny. All right, we'll figure it out. Send, hey, send your suggestions, kivecast at gmail.com. Although we're not doing feedback either this month. So we'll read it on, uh, on uh, episode 71. So let's get to our interview, and it's going to be with Steve and I talking very little, and uh, Steven Sansweet and, uh, and Ron Salvatore talking about this book. Sound good, Steve? Sounds good. And, and I, I do mention that... Uh, that you are the Steve of the podcast, and, and <laughs> I, I demoted him to the other Steve. So. You know, it's funny. I got I got that exact thing happened to me in high school. I was the other Steve in high school. So I, I, there's some part of me that's just well now prepared. Now you're the Steve, and, and I, it's it's almost obscene. But uh, yeah, 
Yeah, that's, I'd say it's beyond obscene, but. <laughs> All right. Let's hear. Where do people get information about vintage Star Wars collectibles? Before podcasts and Facebook groups, there were message boards. Before message boards, there was the Star Wars Collector's Archive. And even before the Star Wars Collector's Archive, there was Stephen J. Sansweet's 1992 book, Star Wars, From Concept to Screen to Collectible. This is the foundational document of our hobby, the book that created the vintage collector mindset. The book that introduced terms like hard copy and first shot. The first photographic display of a pre-production run on the legendary page 93. The first book to talk about the creation and collecting of Star Wars memorabilia. From Gamoria and Guard Banks to Dark Vader Scopes. This is the book that started it all. And its author is joining us on the Kivecast right now. So I am joined here by uh, Ron Salvatore and someone who we're now, strangely enough, calling the other Steve, Steve Sansweet, um, to talk about a book. Um, and it's – actually, I did some research, Steve, and it turns out this was not your first ever book. It's your first ever Star Wars book. Right. Um, it turns out your first book was called The Punishment Cure. Is, oh, uh, yes. Do, do you talk about that at all? No. No, Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was, I'll tell you what, it was a front page story I did in the Wall Street Journal about aversion therapy. And I got approached by a publisher, and I thought, this is the only chance in my lifetime that I am ever going to have a chance to write a book. <laughs> so even though I disbelieved in the, in the subject, and it was sort of a weird book, and almost immediately went to the remainder tables. It was a book, so I figured, okay, I, I I can now die peacefully having a book to my name. Okay, well, at, at some point we'll have to discuss how that has had an impact on your collecting, but that's for another podcast. Um, and and then I've never actually been able to find it, but apparently you also released a book on science fiction toys and models in 1980. Yeah, this, Is that correct? Yeah, this, this was a Starlog book, so it's okay. it's more pamphlety than it is. Look like, and there, there. Occasionally, if you, if you, if you look on eBay, there are some people who have copies of it. It was, you know, like a couple of dollar book. They, they did a series of uh, Starlog photo guidebooks, and I had the the great pleasure of working with Bob Burns, who has probably the most oh, yeah. amazing science fiction toy collection and prop collection because so many people gave him uh, all the guys he worked with uh, gave mm-hmm. him lots of props he's got some amazing star wars props the original time machine wow. uh just 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 great stuff yeah and a he's guy, got an amazing collection he, he does and a guy named um mike minor and mike was a neighbor and mike was assistant art director on star trek one and art director on star trek two and mike then unfortunately passed away but uh good guy and mike was making the settings for these toys like in five minutes he would create new planets it was amazing to behold i am happy to say i have a copy of that book somewhere and um if you're listening and you don't have it you should seek it out just for your uh, collecting library because it's it's actually a pretty good book i seem to remember it's very uh brief but it's got some great photography it's got some wonderful photography and um fun captions and amazing old collectible toys a lot of the the japanese robots and rockets that was uh, from bob's collection and I am very proud that even in 1980, I managed to get some Star Wars figures on the cover. So uh, that was my little uh, contribution. 
Well, that, that's all great, but that isn't what we actually came here to talk about. We're not talking about aversion therapy or uh, or Starlog, but actually, this whole thing started by. You know, so it's probably no secret for people who listen to the show. Um, I look up a fair amount to Ron Salvatore. You know, I really like the way he writes and the way he talks about toys. And I was talking to him one day, sort of about what sort of inspired him. And he, you know, just came right out and said, you know, reading the 1992 book written by Steve Sansweet, Star Wars from concept to screen to collectible, was kind of like one of the the main things that got him going. And I sort of had talks with other of the sort of uh, grand old vintage collectors and they all kind of seem to say that I don't think I've reached that level yet <laughs> probably not Steve's probably rolling his eyes right now and thinking oh jeez I sure am <laughs> and, and what, what it made me realize um, Steve is that I mean certainly you're well recognized as having the biggest collection in the world and as being this great ambassador and collector and, but I, I don't think that this book this 1992 book has actually gotten its full due in terms of the amount of things that it introduced uh, into the collector lexicon, the way it seemed to almost uh, really f- create the vintage collecting hobby the way that it sort of is now. And I, um, it's almost like you're a victim of your own fame, where I think people just go, oh, of course, Steve knows everything, he does everything. But this actual book, I really thought, let's just take a whole episode to just break down what made it interesting, what made it new, and sort of what, what's the story behind this book. And the one last thing I'll say uh, in terms of, of kissing butt is the, the thing I think we're really lucky for is that you're a writer. And so it's a really well written book. And so to have this as sort of like the first book of its kind sort of creates a, a standard that I don't think everyone else has. And that we're really lucky that like whoever it is that edits or doesn't edit Tomart, for example, um, you know, like just how lucky we are to have something that's well written, that's funny, it's, it's well designed and Anyway, I, I, I just want to say that. So, Ron, now you can ask a question. Now I'm done kissing butt. What's a good question? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I agree with everything you said. And just to the, to the point, kind of bouncing off some of what you said, I looked at uh, Amazon today at the book, and I noticed that the, the top review is by one guy named Gus Lopez, which I think <laughs> is from the late 90s or early 2000s, who obviously has a connection to Star Wars collecting and to Amazon, so it kind of makes sense that he'd be commenting. But he has a lot of great things to say about the book, and you know, again, that's going back 15, 16 years. So, uh, you know, I, definitely, I think people like Gus and myself had uh, definitely took a lot of influence from that early on, just because of the time it came out and all the great stuff that was in it. Um, but how did you get started with that, Steve? I mean, you were obviously working at the Wall Street Journal at that time, um, a sci-fi and Star Wars collector. Um, how did that, you know, project come up? Well, I the first time I had interviewed uh, George Lucas was in 1987, and um, it was for an op-edit page piece for the Wall Street Journal on the first 10 years of Star Wars. I tried everything to get up to the ranch, and, and uh, the PR lady, who has become a, a really good friend, Lean Hale, said, no, 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 we can do it on the phone. So I thought, damn, <laughs> <laughs> got to come up with some other reasons. But... In the early 90s, I had heard just through the network. There was a network before there was an Internet, believe it or not, um, of people who sort of knew people who knew people and talked to each other or even wrote to each other. 
And I I had heard that Lucasfilm had just started up its publishing division again after having it closed down for all of those years, you know, the the, the dark period, um, mostly between 86 and, and 94, and that they had started up uh, they had they had appointed somebody as head of publishing and uh, had started up this publishing division, and that one of the first books that were working on some fiction, but that that the first nonfiction book was going to be a price guide. Hmm. And I thought, well, heck, if anybody does a price guide, it should be me. <laughs> and so I called um, I called the head of PR, and she told me who the head of uh, of new head of publishing was and i cold called and i said basically the same thing i hear your you know i blah 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 i work for the wall street journal and got this big collection and if anybody does a price guide it should be me and basically she said and who the hell are you and so <laughs> we we had this long discussion um and and she started saying, well, yeah, you know, I, I really want a price guide. At that point, she didn't tell me that she had almost definitely had picked Tomart to do the price guide. But she said, you know, I, I it would be really good to have a, a, a writer on board because I want the price guide to have anecdotes. Mm-hmm. And I said, um... <laughs> A, a, uh, um, excuse me. Uh, I'm not, I, I don't quite, I don't quite get it. Well, I, you know, I just, I wanted to have stories in it. And I said, well, you know, that's not really a price guide because there had been a couple of unofficial price guides, as we know. Um, mm-hmm. done, the, some done by, uh, Mike and Sue Cott mainly. And done, done unofficially, but done by Lucasfilm's publisher, Random House. And, um, and, and they're, the, 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 the generic title of all of these collectible books was The Official Guide to you know, <laughs> right. cop- Copyright. But of course it wasn't. Um, and I said, well, you know, Lucy, this was Lucy Wilson. I'm, I'm having a little problem, sort of, you know, I see, I see the need to a price guide. I want to work on that. But I think what you're talking about is a book book that's a different, you know, like a real mm-hmm. book with stories in it. But, you know, can, you know, can, can we get together and can we talk about it? And so I arranged to go up to Skywalker and we had a long lunch. And out of that lunch, we came up with the idea of doing a book about um, merchandise, um, but in a uh, uh, an anecdotal kind of way. Mm-hmm. And and then we got Chronicle Books. Chronicle Books was just sort of starting. There was a. A, a member of the McAvoy family, which own, you know, they owned the San Francisco Chronicle and Cron TV and the radio stations and everything. And, and Nyan had just taken over, uh, over Nyan McAvoy had just taken over as publisher of, of Chronicle Books. And he desperately, you know, they're San Francisco. He desperately wanted to be on the ground floor of Star Wars books. And so then we had another meeting and, and it, we all sort of talked about it. And he said, well, you know, it, the merchandise is fine, but wouldn't it be great to sort of have something that went from, um, from 
the movie to the merchandise. And I said, well, yeah, sure. And, and that's, so it was a bunch of people thinking about a bunch of things that came up with, with the basic idea. And eventually then with the very unwieldy title, which I fought against, but, but lost, um, uh, from, from concept to screen to collectible. And there were a number of other titles, which I, I have since forgotten that were, <laughs> that were much shorter, but really that title, you know, says what the, the book is. Mm-hmm. In, it's very il- illustrated. So you don't, you don't remember any of the ones that you liked more? Star Wars. We win. No, I, I don't. I don't. Uh, um, um, it's something you know. We tried like uh, from from film to shelf, or uh, just dumb kinds of yeah. things to try to keep it short. And uh, and then Chronicle decided on on you know what what the title was going to be. So then it became me sort of um, working out a, a, a game plan and just sort of laying out the book and figuring out how to do it. And that's when I came up with the idea is, well, we start with the general idea in George's mind. Um, how, how did the movie come about? Then, how did it get translated to the screen by the the magicians at ILM? And then, how how did the merchandise come in and how much of a role the merchandise played in really keeping and making Star Wars what it is today, even though right then it was you know before all the big announcements of the special editions and and things like that and um and, and so uh, this was an idea that um that everybody approved that it would be this tripartite thing and you have to remember there hadn't been any star wars books that had been done since the 80s um and and nobody had done a book like this and nobody had written about the merchandise and so i was very excited because it would just Test my reporting skills to um, figure out first of all to start with George um, and and then go to some of the you know very early guys at ILM and then um, go to Cincinnati and attack Kenner, um, uh, which was a a, a well planned but um, in the beginning a very disappointing uh, kind of journey. Um, really, well. I'll tell you, um, we started out with the interview with George, and that was supposed to be limited, and it was amazing that I even got as much time as, as, you know, I got to a two-hour interview. But George and I really hit it off, and and it, it was great, and he kept me there for another half an hour, and we were just you know, shooting the breeze. And so I, I got, I got some really, really great stuff. While I was up there, I met, I went to, to Ralph McQuarrie's house in Berkeley and spent time with Ralph and then got to interview some of the really early guys who worked on Star Wars, like Steve Gawley and, um, Mm -hmm. people, people like that, um, uh, people who have won uh, <clears throat> eight or nine Academy Awards wow. and are still at Lucasfilm, and um, and then you know planning the big 
you know, Kenner trip, you know, with Lucasfilm's blessing and all that mm -hmm. kind of stuff. And, um, uh, and, and that became a really important part of the book because uh, I was convinced and had been convinced that it was the merchandise, you know, collect, collect all 12, collect all 92 that really has kept Star Wars alive all these years. And, you know, not just from hardcore collectors and, and there were some, I mean, in, in, in the late eighties, um, there were, there were a number of people who had some really amazing collections and for whatever reason were selling them uh, because of divorces or because of loss of interest or because of things like that. And uh, I really built my collection on on the bones of a lot of those major collections, so, sort of preserving a lot of the things that had been put together that would be, you know, impossible or, you know, right. expensive as hell, especially these days, to try to get together. Um, so, um, it, 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 like Walt Steuben, who who mm -hmm. had probably the biggest Star Wars collection in the world, and and lived in Western Pennsylvania, and in fact Hasbro or Kenner had brought him up to Toy Fair one year to put together a display of his toys, um, which is pretty funny because years, decades later. Uh, Hasbro had me do the same thing at uh, at Com Comic Con. So, yeah, what comes around goes around. But, well, you, you know, Steve, Ron and I have been working on a song called "The Ballad of Walter Steuben." Um, so, Ron's been writing the lyrics, and I've been well, working on the music. But he's uh, exaggerating. We did a blog post, Steve. I just did a post about uh, about Walt Steuben and about his setting up at um, Toy Fair what you just mentioned and it was it's pretty interesting and actually um one of his family members posted a comment on it that said he'd recently passed away i think it was maybe oh, a couple really? of years ago uh, the last so, yeah I, it was disappointing yeah, yeah the here. last i had known i i was in touch with walt several years ago and he was collecting transformers mm -hmm. once a collector always a collector <laughs> i guess yeah but, i think uh, i think i may have helped you get in touch with him because he had bought something from me on ebay Yes, some random thing, and I was like, "Walter Steuben," <laughs> yeah. and then we started emailing, you know. And I remember talking to you about it, and you know, no one had heard from him. It seems like in a while at that time, but yeah, yeah it's, had, it's too bad to hear that he passed. Yeah, we had a nice, uh, we had a nice chat. I remember that, and I, you know, said, you know, thank you. You know, you're responsible for, you know, a major backbone of this collection, and and really. You know, getting me to think that this is more than a small hobby. This is something that I really want to concentrate on. Um, so, so I had this great interview with George. I had some really cool interviews with the ILM folks, and then I go to Cincinnati, and uh, the first thing I say is, "Well, I would like to look in your files first. And the reply was. What files? <laughs> <laughs> they didn't even have copies of their retail catalogs. Wow. This is Kenner? This is Kenner. <laughs> yeah, I'm not this surprised. Is, <laughs> this is Kenner in 1990-91, and um, there were no photos. There, I mean, very few 
paper, a couple of scattered catalogs uh, among the years, and I'm thinking, oh my goodness, because when I first went to Lucasfilm and I talked to Lucy Wilson, and I said, well, the first thing I want to do, Lucy, is look through all of the early licensing files from 1977 through, you know, at least 1986. And I think I'm going to find a lot of stuff in there. And she said, ah, I guess I shouldn't have thrown those away six years ago. <laughs> and and just, just so the, the listener who doesn't own this book knows, I mean, the book that it's very extensive in terms of the information it has about Kenner, I believe it's the first time first shot and hard copy were used as terms, you know, taken outside to collectors. And it's, it must have been one of the first places anyone talked about snaggle, blue snaggle teeth. And it talks about the sculptors and Loomis and Lippincott and Bordeaux, all these names that I assume had never appeared anywhere else. Correct. So yeah. the finished product appears as though, Steve, that you just walked into Cincinnati and everyone just opened up the doors and gave you pictures of things like the sculpt for Darth Vader, which is just sitting here on right. page 68. Uh, uh-huh. So, uh-huh. Yeah. so this is amazing. Or, or I got them all from the Lucasfilm catalogs uh, <laughs> and, and paperwork. Luckily, some of the some of the licensing material had been kept, duplicates had been kept in the legal files. So I did spend a week or two, literally at at, at Lucasfilm, um, and days and nights, and you know, going through all of the legal files where I found things like you know the federal government, uh, you know, didn't want to uh, uh, let them license the X-wing fighter mm-hmm. because they were afraid it had some military <laughs> aspect. And, uh, <laughs> You National know, security. All, all the, yeah, the great, you know, all all those great anecdotes which I hear repeated back to me constantly over the years. Did you know? <laughs> said, yeah, I sort of knew that. <laughs> That's great. What was the craziest thing you found in those files? Do you have one, or is the X Wing the most the weirdest one? Uh, the, 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 that's the, the 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 files on on the merchandise. The the X wing was probably the the one that got me scratching my head the most, and um you know and then there there were photos from Takara and and they were uh, the, the, to to show size reference. They were photographing toys next to cigarette packs and. <laughs> It's just like, uh, okay, well, um, you know, and the things that they turned down, like a Star Wars light bulb and uh, the, 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 the liquor decanter. I, uh, the liquor yes, decanter, yes. Uh, Star Wars Darth Vader sunglasses, which, of course, we know they don't turn down today. No. Yeah. Uh, no, no. Now we have Yoda grapes, Steve, so, I mean, we, the, you know, all the boundaries have been crossed. Yoda grapes, Fader apples, and BB-8 oranges. Yes, indeed. And I've nibbled corn from Hungary. And oh, yeah, yes, wow. the barriers, the barriers are long, long gone. So, well, the barriers were gone when I started collecting um, uh, fresh chicken parts in France. But that's another. <laughs> Even yeah, know about that. But it, it's, so, uh, yes. Well, it's funny so, that you talk yeah. about the anecdotes because I didn't, I was looking through the book again and there are so many things that I thought were just common knowledge. But right. then it really turned like 
the fact that Lucas's favorite item was the Rumpf mug or whatever. Yeah. I've always known that and the snarling Chewbacca because I'm a Chewbacca guy. So the snarling Chewbacca was by Don Post was put away in favor of the one with the closed mouth. And I just kind of now realized like, oh, this is probably why I know of this and just all these great stories. Oh, yeah. I think that was the first time I remember ever reading anything like that. And like Steve said, that stuff has trickled through collecting so if people just say it even if they haven't read the book they've heard that stuff so. there there was there was nothing in print that was anything like this book which was why it was so exciting for me to do it was i mean it was a lot of work but it i was lucky that at kenner there were people who were so proud of the work that they had done that they had kept their own things, and 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 chief among them were people like, well, certainly Mark Boudreaux, who started there, you know, as as a as a college student in a sort of a work study program, and has and has been the guy on Star Wars ever since, mm-hmm. and has gotten you know even this year an award uh, for for some of his work on Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Bernie Bernie Loomis was still alive, and I was able to interview him by phone. Um, Dave Okada, I think by then Dave had gone to Mattel, but I was able to do an in-person interview with him. Mm-hmm. Tom Osborne, Jim Swearingen, uh just mm-hmm. was a fount of knowledge. He has just a great memory on uh, on specifics. Dave Maurer, who was the the marketing guy, but Mark was amazing. Mark said, um, "Well, you know, I've kept a lot of the drawings that I did and and some of the photos that we did at the time of the mock-ups, and I, right. I even I even have a couple of oh, oh missile firing Boba Fett prototypes <laughs> in the closet at home." And yeah. um, and so I said, Mark, if you could bring that stuff in, and if we could get a photograph, that would be amazing. So. A lot of the really cool old stuff in the book, um, and plans, and 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 things that don't exist anymore, and some of the great photos of the uh, of the uh, Jane Abbott dolls, uh, the twelve-inch uh, action figures. With uh, a lot of that came from Mark, and well, he was that, just a... wonderful and charming. Yeah, I mean that's interesting, and that, that's a question I actually have. It's always intrigued me is where some of the photos in the book came from for instance the one of the uh the yak face the darth vader and the c3po uh sculpts lined up next to their production counterparts i mean were those things that they took and at the time for you but that uh, looks like Bujo actually those the, those those were things that were taken for the book um yeah. that people people yes certain people still okay. had those yeah. And and it wasn't Mark had a lot of them, but there were other people who were then also willing to bring in some of the pieces that um that they had rescued and because mm-hmm. there was no I mean, I thought, well, there's some archives building someplace. Well, no, there wasn't. I mean, right. it's just like it's just like uh, uh there was a there was a Lucasfilm licensing archive. And so um, such as it was, you know, it was behind chain link fence in a barn. And so I was able to go through that and find a number of things that I was able to take photographs of or 
um, or mention in the book, that grew over the years, of course, and that has now all gone down to uh, Southern California. It's all in Disney's hands. It's locked up. It's I don't know what's happening to that archive, but all I know is that Lucasfilm and Disney bring retailers through here to show them the history of Star Wars licensing. <laughs> yeah, uh, there's, well, that's there's great no, for you. There's, yeah. Well, there's no other place. There's no other place to do it. Mm-hmm. But Mark was really Mark Boudreau was really central in so much of this, especially uh, not only the great stories he told and and the explanations of the mini rigs and and how he came up with those things, but also for the visuals and uh, and getting you know some of the other guys that he knew were there who still had some of the visuals and hearing Jim Swearingen talk about how he developed the uh, X-wing and and the reasons why it wasn't exactly like you know the version right. that you saw in the movie I and mean, I mean there were reasons for all of these things there were cost right. reasons there were other kinds of reasons and then i had to balance things like you know bernie loomis's ego with uh, the stories that i heard from the team as to you know who, whose great idea this was and yeah you know, cl- clearly it was the team getting excited about of the script and some of the scrap that they had seen or the the photos that they had seen um and and convincing you know bernie and and then hearing that word from bernie that i had never heard before toyetic mm-hmm. which uh which is a word that has you know has sort of become much more commonplace it was toyetic it was right. that that george had um had come up with you know, such an amazing galaxy with so many different characters and um, and, and and vehicles and uh, uh, scenes that that would make great playsets, and the fact that they signed the contract the month before the movie came out. Yeah, right. Um, and and therefore couldn't get any three dimensional stuff out that first year, and then took that big risk on the early bird certificate package. Mm-hmm. Um, th- these were all great stories, and and it's yeah. just not everything positive. I mean, you know. It was, Reporter for the Wall Street Journal, and I wanted all the stories, and I, you know, found, yeah. found, you know, all the, the news clips and 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 newspaper stories about you know people just railing on Kenner for the nerve of selling the cardboard <laughs> kid at uh, yeah. at uh, at uh, Christmas time, and then and then there are people who have who have mistakenly picked up things from the book and sort of turned it around, saying, "Yes, Kenner Kenner sold six hundred thousand." Of the certificate kits, and they all sold out, and people were going. Okay. <laughs> they they sold less than half of them. Huh. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so uh, the, there was this French show um, a couple of years ago at the at at one of the uh, one of the Louvre related museums, and and I remember reading the copy, and it was you know because I had to edit the copy, and it was like, yes, they sold out. 500,000 of these kits and I said uh no nope. no that's not 
uh, that's not quite true. And then a lot of the photography in the book was new photography taken by my friend Steve Essig, um, and um, just it also did a did a beautiful job in as well as you know as as being able to you know rework some of the uh, early stuff. This was really before Photoshop, so. You know anything that was done, and then and then they picked this husband wife team to do the design of the book. They also did my first Star Wars scrapbook, and mm-hmm. um, and we all we all put it together, and um, uh, it it just um, it worked it out great. great. It was, yeah. And, 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 and this, yeah. yeah. Well, I just there's it's funny what you're saying about the anecdotes that get passed down, but then there's some that I'm amazed haven't been passed on. Yeah, like, like, like everyone talks about that uh, they they were hesitant because you know they didn't like making toys based on movies, and I've heard that a million times. But then I just read today or reread that it was because Fox made Doctor Doolittle toys in 1967, <laughs> right. and that because the giraffe Jack in the Box, I looked it up, because that couldn't sell, they knew that this wouldn't work, and that's why you needed Bernie Loomis to say it was toyetic. You needed someone who really believed in it to sell it. But I mean, that's we should be talking about Doctor Doolittle all the time in our hobby. And, and well, never right. I mean, you know, Bernie Bernie was convinced that. By the time they came out with their three-dimensional figure, they had their contract was just like, okay, we will produce this year at least one family-oriented board game. Yeah, <laughs> period. <laughs> period. Yeah, that's that's another anecdote that doesn't get talked about that much. And actually, we did another a blog post on that too about the misconception misconception that somehow Kenner was caught with their pants down when it's like, well, no, they just signed the contract a month before the movie came out. Right. Yeah, they and only nobody, agreed, really, and nobody to make a board would. game. No, but nobody else would. Um, yeah. And then an- another thing in the book is that part of the reason Kenner invested in it was that they thought there was a chance there would be a TV show as good as the Planet of the Apes TV show. <laughs> they would come out of this movie and that that's where they'd get the money. I'd never heard that anywhere else either. We need to start spreading this because that's really that, interesting. That's yeah. exactly right. And part of the contract and part of the part of the deal was that they would have the rights for the TV show. And in mm-hmm. fact, George and Fox had talked about a TV show and that's part of the initial contract that George signed with uh, – with Fox, and so instead of Star Wars on TV, we got Battlestar Galactica. Um, mm-hmm. But there could have been a Star Wars TV show, and those were the toys that were selling. Obviously, Star Trek and Battle of the uh, Apes and things like that, which were on in your house every week, and there were just networks back then, and there was not 50,000 channels and streaming this and streaming that. That was a pretty good bet if it was a popular series. And in this case, Bernie was convinced that people would have forgotten the movie by the time they got their action figures out, but that's when the word toyetic came about, that we can build a wonderful space line even though nobody knows or nobody really remembers this movie. Certainly nobody expected a sequel, and absolutely nobody, including George and Fox, thought that it would be the the cultural I mean, forget about forget about monetary success, but that the, it would be the cultural phenomenon 
that it became that year. And and there are all kinds of historic reasons why, and, and we explore some of that, too, in the book. And, right. and, and the dark times politically in the United States with the Nixon impeachment and the Vietnam War and the dark movies that were winning all the awards because that was sort of the feeling. And here's George is coming along who wants to make this fun Flash Gordon space fantasy that has you know nothing to do with you know present day really although you know he <laughs> he clearly clearly the evil empire was the evil empire and uh, in in a way it was the united states government right and and, and the rebels don't the tell rebels, anybody <laughs> no and the rebels but the rebels were the Viet Cong. well there was this nasty Nasty review from some cineast magazine in France in which the guy got it just the opposite and said that, you know, he was portraying the, the, the Viet Cong freedom fighters as the empire. Oh my and, God. And, and, and that the, you know, the resistance was the American, whatever, you but, know. Well, you know, Steve, there, there was an American president for eight years who also took a similar view of Star Wars. So. Well, and, and, and that's why, that's why the, the movie never was shown in the Soviet Union. It was not until the dissolution of the Soviet Union that Star Wars got legitimate movie play in 1991 because because the Soviet Union became under Ronald Reagan the evil empire and the media called his strategic defense initiative the Star Wars defense and um, in fact, Lucasfilm sued the Associated Press and and lost because of that. But um, it, 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 it's just it's everything is involved with everything else. And, and, and bring it back to the toys too. Another anecdote that I would thought I would have heard more, but that Kenner was very hesitant to make any uh, guns because mm-hmm. it was so close to Vietnam that Pete that like everyone was down on toy guns. And so, right? Is that is that is that, is that still true? That has become a controversial anecdote. Oh, okay. (laughs) um, Going back about 10 or 12 years, um, I got a note from George's office, and somebody had found that um, quote in the book, and um, George was not happy about it or said something, you know, and I, I had to write a memo back saying, um, well, this came from the head of um, uh, Kenner Toys, and I did pass it by George, mm-hmm. and he didn't deny it at the time. Nobody mm-hmm. really gets killed. I mean, they get sort of, I mean, yeah, you don't see the blood, though, and it's all, you know, sort of fantasy. And so... Um, and I never heard another word. <laughs> wow, that's interesting. Well, well, yeah, it's, these it's, things these things last forever. I mean, you know, once something's in print, um, you know, whether it, it then becomes uh, something that people talk about as uh, just uh, oh yeah, everybody knows that blah 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 blah. Right. You know, 
The well, I mean, it's out. believable, too, because, I mean, Lucas is coming out of the whole let's make a, a Flash Gordon-style movie, and when they merchandised all that stuff, the serials, they always had the ray guns. So right, it, It's right. a believable anecdote. <laughs> well, and, and probably it was around the time that Steven Spielberg was taking the guns out of the hands of the FBI agents. Oh, <laughs> right. yeah. In that one redo of E.T., which he then reversed himself again. Right. And... <laughs> And added them back in, but it was probably, it was probably around that time, and somebody had had approached, you know, Lucasfilm about that, and so I had to say, well, uh, George uh, had no problem with it at the time, so uh, yeah. it's, it's really weird. Uh, in the Disney weird. parks, most recently, they just kind of pulled all of the Star Wars guns from the shops, and it's just funny to hear this. I, I read that anecdote today, and to see it and think I was just there, you know, a few weeks ago. And an employee actually told us that, oh, yeah, that just came down. We're not selling any guns in the parks anymore, including Star Wars guns. It's just Well, there crazy. is this, I mean, they're, I mean, you know, the world changes. Yeah. And people change. And it's sort of like when they sold the uh, Slave Leia Big Fig mm -hmm. uh, at the parks during Star Wars weekends years ago. And mm -hmm. someone complained. Um, and they immediately took it off sale, and it was gone for about four or five weeks until it was repackaged as um, uh, Leia as Jabba's dancing girl. <laughs> Which, so, you know, I guess is somewhat better than slaves. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you know, there, there, there are words. There are yeah. words that have different connotations today. It's just sort of. You know, that wonderful series All in the Family with Archie Bunker, you could not run today because no. mm -hmm. people would get offended. It was deliberately offensive and humorous at the same time. And he's, he's, he's not likable. <laughs> no, he was too likable. <laughs> <laughs> All right, now, now I've, I have one question that is always, I've always wondered, I've always wanted to ask you. So one of the most common things that's, people ask whenever they start collecting is how many toys were sold and I've never ever seen any answer to this except in your book in which right. you say that in 78 they sold 43 million figures including 26 million I guess 12 backs um, and then you then say can you believe collectors pay up to $100 a piece <laughs> um, <laughs> but where did you yeah, get that number? Have changed a bit, huh? Yeah, they have. <laughs> where did you get that number, and are there more numbers where you found those? Yes, um, there are more numbers. Uh, I had found in the legal files the Hasbro um, reports to Lucasfilm um, oh, wow. on for the first couple of years, and so I knew specifically how many puzzles, how many action figures. Um, and, and, uh, I was able to get those figures from, from the royalty reports that, uh, that, that Kenner had sent to Lucasfilm. And it's just like that figure of, uh, 250 million action figures sold between 1978 and 1986 mm -hmm. was also from a, uh, was also from a, a Kenner report to, to Lucasfilm. Somewhere, in the Rancho Obi-Wan deep, deep storage files, <laughs> um, there are probably photocopies of some of the um, 
material that I put together for this book. Obviously, you have so much space for a book. I, mm-hmm. I had plenty of stuff, uh, and then they they decided to insert these for for um, uh, to make the book look good. All of a sudden, I see I see a first uh, proof, and I see these double page photos to start chapters with quotes in them, and saying. Yeah, <laughs> what, what 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 the heck is all this? <laughs> and then the cover, which has no type on it whatsoever. Yeah, it mm-hmm. And so, actually, this is my partner Bob's idea to photograph the prototype um, gold Darth Vader mm-hmm. carrying case, and that's what we sent in. And out of that, they decided they they you know photostat idea. Yeah, well, yeah, well, I mean, it's it was his idea for the for the cover, and, oh, wow. and then, but then they made they made it the way that they did. They uh, yeah, like they quadrants or something. Solarized it in quadrants yeah. and quadrants and things like that. And that uh, kind of made that Vader case an iconic item. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it, it, it is for me anyway. Whenever I see that Vader case, which is you know around in a few collections, oh well, uh, well, of course, the only reason I wrote this book was to was to increase the value of my collection. <laughs> <laughs> I was, There's probably I mean, some idiots out there who actually think that. So let me but. let me let me let me tell you guys, I. I I was a journalist all my life. I I had all of the the the, the ethics and the the morals of of a Wall Street Journal reporter, mm-hmm. and so I saw stuff all over Kenner. All I had to do was say, um, "Gee, but might you be interested in selling something like that?" <laughs> and I did. And all you guys, all you guys rushed in where I feared to tread. No, and I, yeah. I, I do not regret that. I do not regret that one. Well, that was on my list of questions, Steve. Was that as a collector? You know, we're all this is a collecting podcast. I mean, the, the temptation must have been huge to sort of make offers to people for different things. I guess you just answered it, but you resisted that for the most part. It, it, I resisted it completely. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it, believe me, it was tempting. But believe me, uh, I, I also felt that I had a a job to do, and this was not something that I wanted to mix as a collector and as a writer, and especially being someone who would be going back to the Wall Street Journal. Hell, at the time, I was bureau chief in Los Angeles, right. uh, and it just did not seem right to me. Um, mm-hmm. You know, in retrospect, I say you fool you, but no, I do not regret making that choice at all. And yeah. it, it, it also, I mean, I am so thankful that it started people like you guys without fans, without collectors, with a passion for this stuff. So much of what we have now that is in private collections would have been lost forever. We see that Kenner did not keep things. We see no. that Lucas, Lucasfilm trashed things. I mean, mm-hmm. um, I did get a little bit of a reputation as a dumpster diver. At Lucas, <laughs> but I, I always asked. I always asked, and they always gave me a strange look, and um, usually they said, well, yeah, I was just going to throw it away anyway, as long as you don't sell it, you know, and 
And you know you've been here, right? <laughs> we haven't sold yeah. it. We just keep at it. So, uh, yeah. But it was, yeah, it was, it was very much a, one of those situations. I, I still remember seeing the Star Tots and the X-Wing fighter and the, and the, and the land speeder that they had made mm-hmm. for it. And I just fell in love with those things, but it yeah. was not, it was, and, and the dolls, um, the prototype. Oh yeah, well, there's what? one upstairs right now. Yeah, well, that's <laughs> good. It was only, Four or five years later, Steve, that, you know, I was out there in Cincinnati with, you know, guys like Gus and Chris Gergulius and right. Todd Chamberlain looking for stuff. And, you know, I can remember finding things and being like, this is the exact same piece that is in Steve's book. <laughs> this is the <laughs> item. And it's just a little bit trippy almost to realize that. Um, so you owe me big time, you guys. <laughs> I would not I, deny I, that at all. I, you know, I left. No I left. Yeah, I left all that stuff for you to discover, and I'm I'm happy. I mean, this this, this group of collectors, this informal, semi-formal, what worldwide group of passionate fans that have kept the story not only alive, but have added so much through the the Star Wars archive site through the through the through the the the, the archive cast through um, writing blogs I mean it, it's just wonderful we wouldn't have had all this stuff or or most of this stuff without fans being out there um, going through old Kenner phone directories <laughs> oh well uh, yeah I mean Todd Chamberlain and I on downtime in, in Cincinnati, what, to your book, to just find names, to then go look up the names in the phone book. Is was that easy? Oh, um, man. <laughs> in, in, lo- in looking through the book, I, I, I realized that it was not just the names I mentioned, but a lot of the photos I had asked, okay, well, who carved this and who did that? And so there are a lot of other names that mm-hmm. are scattered through the book in oh, addition yeah. to, the, to the guys that I was able to interview. Um, and, um, and, and stayed friendly with, well, I have stayed friendly with Mark all these years. And, um, you know, it's just, it's, it's been great because you get a guy like Mark Boudreaux who has this same passion, not only for creating these things, but also the history and the knowledge that they're only too happy to share. And, right. um, and that's, and that's what makes it so exciting that, that this stuff is there. It's, it, 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 we share it all. We don't keep it to ourselves. Um, we don't stab each other, each other in the back. Well, with one or two exceptions. Yeah. Um, <laughs> For the most part. Uh, uh, <laughs> you know, if somebody's out there trying to, trying to make a buck on something phony, um, mm-hmm. You know, we we let each other know about it, and um, and, and so it's uh, it, it's just a wonderful it's just a wonderful huge family. Um, yeah, no, I, I think you're right, and you know, I, these people, some of these people, I've known for twenty plus years, and you know, it's it's a great community. God, um, you are old. <laughs> oh, it is terrible, Steve. When, you know, when I first probably met you, I was about the youngest person I knew in the hobby, and here I am now being called an old-timer by Sky uh, Payne. Uh, um, I, I but, say that out of deference because, I mean, the whole thing is, you know, it's like, I, I don't know. I, so I've been working on this theory for a while about, like, the generations of vintage Star Wars collectors. Uh-huh. And so um, obviously people who actually bought them at the time, that's the first generation. And then I sort of put 
like Ron and Gus and Chris. And so I sort of think of them as like the, you know, concept of collectible collectors. Like I actually think of it in terms of like this was the book. This well, was we can the, have the we can have the the gold, bronze, and silver exactly. age of collecting. <laughs> well, because yeah, it's a little bit like that. But because when I started, it was really it was uh, a lot of attention was on Kellerman's book, right. and so there's a lot of people who really that was sort of their main reference base. And I realized something. So I've been obsessed with the fact that uh, Ron and Gus and Chris and those guys in general they don't care that much about two dimensional pre production items. Um, and they definitely don't care about cardback variations. And then I was looking through Kellerman, and of course Kellerman is all proof cards, well, lens, and cardback variations. All that comes out of John's book, man. All that. And none of it, book. none of it is in Steve's book. Right. No, because so, nobody cared before. John. And, and so, and so, well, but, and and another thing is, I I didn't know that stuff existed. I never asked oh, about no. the process. <laughs> And so, and and anyway, most of it was <clears throat> off-site by that time, um, uh, and, and we know where it went, and that's now gotten you know pretty well shared. Um, so it's great; people are interested in various aspects, but there's so much, and there's still stuff that we're discovering. Um, I just you know, but, and, but it, it's cool because yeah. you were like, so it's like these different taste makers. I sort of see it as like showing up, and yes. like one of my favorite things is like. The things that meant a lot to you, that then meant a lot to collectors like Ron, but then have kind of died off. But like, I think we need to bring them back. And the, the one example I have is what you—I believe—the only place in the book that you use the term "Holy Grail." Do you do you know what that what that is in refer what that refers to, Steve? God, I don't. It was the Gamorian Guard. Bank. Ah, yes. right. That's My big mistake. And, My and, big mistake. And, and the thing is, is that Ron has a write-up of it on the archive, and it's one of the great, it's one of the oldest entries. You know, it's the the super old format. Um, so I think it'd be really fun just to talk about like that piece and and talk about you know why it meant so much then, and, and what do you think has been the sort of evolution of that of that item over the years. I well, of course, I made a big mistake on that because it was produced. It was produced and sold in Australia in a box, and so. Um, and then I learned. I learned in my after my first interview with Starlog magazine back in the eighties, never. And well, I made a mistake on that, but never to use the term "holy grail" or or explain what my holy grail is, because I said, well, you know. Uh, it, it was a couple of years ago, and there was this Return of the Jedi bike uh, boxed at Toys R Us, and it was uh, sixty nine ninety nine, and I passed by, and I wish I had bought it. So that's sort of my holy grail. I'm looking for one, and within within a week of the article coming out, about two months later, I had gotten a call from a dealer on the East Coast and a dealer on the West Coast, and they both had my holy grail, and they both had it men in the box. And they each quoted me the same price, $2,000. $2, and I laughed. Uh, I know you had the same experience with the uh, the Huffy bike, because I remember being semi-involved with somebody trying to sell you a Huffy bike and you telling me that same sort of thing. Like, well, the, and the Huffy bike, actually, the Huffy bike, I ended up buying two of them because mm -hmm. I eventually it was a guy who had worked for Kenner and had bought them from the company store. Oh, and wow. Then, and then I traded one plus some cash to get one with the store display. Mm -hmm. um, this was also my wonderful, wonderful 
gift to humankind of getting 500 um, Revenge of the Jedi mint card proofs and sell, and selling them for $5 each. <laughs> well, yeah, Steve Denny's got you beat on that one, though, so he yeah. probably sold them for $3 a piece. Yeah, but, well, yeah that's tough there's one. No, there's only one Steve Denny. But you know what? It's... <laughs> It's, it's, you know, you look at the prices now and you go, you know, that's so ridiculous. And, yeah, I mean. And yet, you know, that it, was, is, it is what it is. That was one of my questions, too, Steve, was um, just when you're doing the book, obviously this is probably some of the first time, you know, one of the first times a collector's really coming face-to-face with some of this pre-production stuff, you know, wax sculpts for figures and micro-collection pieces and whatnot. And, did you ever think that after putting this in the book, you know, 20 years down the road, these things were going to be, you know, collectibles that people are out there trying to find? Or was it just, oh, this is behind-the-scenes stuff that is just going to be kept at Kenner? I mean, the, did you ever the, have any the, inkling that this would be worth what it is today? No, I did not. And mm-hmm. uh, and that was the – I mean, you see, I don't put any kind of price in it. I thought, you know, mm-hmm. these are one-of-a-kind one pieces. They're, they've probably – disappeared or will disappear and so you know that was the whole thing that the book led to was people looking for these things and starting to put values on these things and um and 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 that's cool so i mean it it took the hobby to a different level of you know let's bring it back to the sort well if if we're if we're back that far you know can we find the original you know wooden uh sculpt for the whole of uh this ship or how about the original engineering drawings or you know there's so many different parts of the process which i really didn't go into because this was a more general book um, that that people have now written about, which is which is really cool. So yeah. I mean, you can find out just about any kind of information that you're interested in. Yeah, I mean, there's one photo in particular in here that the the Steve Varner sculpts for the um, Luke on Hoth micro piece. Uh, I was you know, just a, look. I was just looking at that. Yeah. yeah, and there's the wax, and then there's a hard copy. It looks like the the wax made and modified because the arms are a little different. But then there's there's also some you know conceptual, and then later on, you know, later metal figures in front of it. I mean, that one picture to me has had a huge influence just on the way people could collect pre-production items, you know, when trying to to assemble different stages of right. things, which right. to me comes all out of this one picture, you know, it's people mm-hmm. seeing it in this yeah. book and then Page 93. You, know, guys like, <laughs> you know, Chris Dragulius doing that and then putting a photo on the web and then other people saying, oh geez, you know, I can do that. And now it's that's like commonplace in the hobby, which is pretty fascinating. Yeah, that's what I meant. I was going, I was going through the book, and I and I happened to open to that page, and I saw Steve Warner's name, and thought, well, yeah, I mean, that's that's another guy that I mentioned I had never met, but but I tried mm-hmm. to mention as many of the people as I could, if anybody there knew. Okay, well, whose idea was this, or who sculpted this, or how did this come about? And uh, Chris, I've always been a sucker for the micro collection, even though it was a huge failure. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, and but I, I mean, I love the paperwork. I love the chroma lens. It's just you know, and I've got a little bit of this and a little bit of that and box flats and things. But you know, different people get excited about different things, and that's what's so great about the hobby. There's uh, there's enough stuff out there for all of us, and uh, and hopefully, this is going to get passed on. I mean, you know, we're all. I mean, Ron, look, 
he's getting really old. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, I just, my back's starting to hurt. My hair's almost gone. I just don't even know what I'm doing anymore. Uh, but, yeah, it, the, the hobby uh, keeps changing. You know, it keeps rolling on, and, you know, I feel like we're on, on an, onto a new sort of era here with, you know, Facebook and everything else. So it's true, you know, but just to get back to the book, I do feel like, that kind of started a lot of things, you know, just in the collecting mentality. I mean, this book that came out in 92, as you mentioned earlier, during a, a fairly dark time for Star Wars stuff, I know I was, geez, uh, a teenager when I first saw it, and suddenly it dawned on me that, oh, geez, I, mean, I, I like Star Wars, and I collected these toys, and, uh, you know, I somewhat seriously collected them as a little kid, and I'm like, I could actually do this like as a, an adult collection. And I never even thought about that before I saw that book. It was only it was only it was the second Star Wars book to come out in the new era after the first volume of uh, Tim Zahn's Thrawn trilogy. Mm -hmm. So that came out in uh, that came out in ninety one. This came out in ninety two, along with the second volume of Tim. So it was it was the first nonfiction book in the new era. So. Um, yeah, no, and it's a great yeah. book. I mean, I've we probably didn't really introduce it that well at the start, but I mean, for people who aren't familiar with it, I mean, it's it, it takes you through the, the George Lucas's original idea for the movie, um, the making of the movie, and then the licensing, uh, you know, the development of the toys, and it, it's concise. It's not too long. Uh, gives you tons of great details, as we've been talking about. And, you know, for years I, I've said, and I still feel that way, that it's probably my favorite book on Star Wars because it doesn't just approach it as a movie. Um, it, it takes it into the licensing and the merchandising, which to me is, you know, 50% of Star Wars in a lot of ways. Right, and, and it goes it, beyond It goes beyond great. just the uh, Kenner stuff because, I mean, yeah, there's extensive does. interviews with Charlie Lippincott and Mark Pevers of Fox. And, um, you know, some some of the stories they tell about the about the... The troubles of the early game uh, are are just uh, are just sort of fun, and uh, you know, getting thrown out of toy showrooms and uh, yeah. Yeah, stuff like that. I think part of the appeal for me as a kid who grew up loving those uh, making of specials, and you know, having you know, Star Wars to me, part of the experience was those making of specials yeah. where I could see the guys making the movies. The book kind of tied into that and extended mm -hmm. it into the the licensing and the merchandising stuff. So. To me, when when I first read it, I was just like, "Oh man, this is just fascinating." I probably read it twice, you know, straight through the first time I got it. And and also, I mentioned it earlier, but a thing that I see in similarity between Ron's writing on the archive and Steve's writing is a kind of sense of humor. And like, as an example, just there's a picture of two Jawas, and and Steve uh, subtitled it a couple of Jawas setting out to do some scavenging, no doubt. And like, it's just a little detail. And That's it's, my weird sense of humor. Yeah. Yeah, but it's but it's great, and it it totally it it because it makes it it's like it's almost like, I mean, not like the New Yorker or something, but you know, like you have to have the cartoons to go along with. You have to have a little injection of humor, and and I don't know. I like how that's kind of continued on, and and I've always tried to write conversationally. Right. Very hard to do in an encyclopedia, but uh, <laughs> otherwise. <laughs> no, it's, you know, Steve's always been a terrific writer. He just gets right to the point. And, you know, that was another question I had, or just a point even that, you know, it seems like your experience, you touched on this already a little bit, but your experience as a, a reporter really probably set you up perfectly to do this kind of thing. 
think you're right. Because it's such an investigative reporter type of thing, and, and the writing is so to the point, to the facts, you know, uh, focused on the anecdotes. You seem to know what people are going to get a kick out of. You know, it just seems like you were perfectly set up to do this, you know, based on the Star Wars stuff and, and being a Wall Street Journal guy. Um, so, I mean, to me, it's just a great convergence of stuff. Well, you know what? I should look back and look at all my tapes and notes and absolutely. Yeah, yeah. What, what was, was left out? In, yeah. What was left out? <laughs> go, go find that oh, box, yeah. Steve. Do a new edition, Contact Chronicle, uh, and uh, you know, or, or we'll produce it. You know, yeah, um, right. But yeah, I actually I want to go back to the to the Gamorrean Guard because I didn't bring it up because you made a mistake. See, I didn't know you made a mistake because I'm of the generation of collectors who wouldn't care about the Gamma Rain guard bank, much to Ron's chagrin. <laughs> and so that's part of like – that was sort of my point was that like here's this great thing and I feel stupid because how do I not see how cool that is? And now somehow, you know, that's – there's just these certain things that were really important that seem to have fallen aside. Right. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah. Do, do, did you know, Steve, that uh, the remedial reading kit that you have a great write-up about is actually on eBay, and you could easily buy one if you wanted to right now for twenty-two thousand dollars. Yes, yes, twenty-two thousand. Yes, yeah. Well, actually, I have a second one, so maybe I'll put one up and undercut. <laughs> I like that item, and we'll defend it as a great, oh, a great, oh, and fairly hard to find piece. Oh, I love that item too, especially the uh, the uh, the purple. Uh, uh, what do you what do you oh, call the mimeograph that? sheets? The mimeograph, oh, yeah. mimeograph <laughs> yeah. sheets, and they smell like preschool or oh or, lord, know, they still school. smell. <laughs> they still smell. And then the five books and the film strip. And actually, um, um, I gave the film strip to, or I scanned the film strip for um, tops, and they used it as a series of uh, ten um, ten cards in. Wow. One of their uh, sets a couple of years ago. Huh, so, no uh, yeah. Cool. So, because yeah. that's something that no one's ever going to see, you know, unless they pull right. out, they get one of those kits and they run that film strips. You want those old projectors, right? That's because cool. the, the the black and white uh, art in the books is not the same as the color art on the film strip. So it's mm -hmm. uh, the very cool, very cool. And, and I do like too that you mentioned the book that that Lucas was actually proud of it you know that maybe his whole educational push like it's really clear how concerned george lucas was about sugar and education right. Right. <laughs> and uh it's, it's interesting in terms of seeing him because people don't always paint him in a flattering light but i, I kind of like this this side george to me is a creative genius he's a hell of a nice guy Look, you know, there. It's so easy to criticize these days on the internet without leaving your name, and not a very brave way to do things. But I, I still think the world of George, and the amazing world that he created that we can still play in, and um, for years to come. Yeah, and that's. Well, I mean, yeah, and that's. I mean, another question I had, I guess, leads into that is. I'm assuming this book helped you get a job at Lucasfilm eventually. And it was a few years later that you went to work there, correct? Well, I, I had started – actually, I, um, I went from this to the Tomar Price Guide and from the Tomar mm -hmm. Price Guide to the Encyclopedia, and I was still at the journal. And um, 
um, making a decent salary and having a good job and got this call out of the blue saying, could you recommend somebody to work for a year at no practically no money to go out to talk to fans? And I said, let's talk. <laughs> and I took a huge, huge leap of faith and a huge drop in salary and um, never looked back and had a, had an amazing 15 years at uh, at Lucasfilm and well, uh, hobby's better for it Steve I mean you did a great job you know well, have done a great job thank you and uh, come and visit us at Rancho Obi-Wan uh, oh, anytime yeah. Yeah, we should put in a plug here because the thing was I didn't want to talk about Force Awakens at all because I heard your interview with Rebel Force Radio and so people can go listen to that if they want to hear Steve talk about a movie um, but we, we definitely do. And the other thing is I'm very frustrated because you may not know this, Steve, but I actually started the California Vintage Collectors Club and uh, and then Steve took it over. And then he's been up to your place twice and I've never been there. So I'm very, I always see these pictures. We like, know. <sighs> <sighs> You'll make it someday. We'll be here for, for a long time. We've got a lot of activities coming up uh, this year that are going to be fun. Um, we have our fifth anniversary uh, Gala Rovember the 5th, which is exactly five years since we had our big grand opening. Mm -hmm. So, oh, um, but, but lots of other cool stuff that we'll be able to announce in the, in the fairly near future. And, uh, and people can just a, go on. Yep. It's a great facility and, you know, everyone should check it out. And there's a gift shop and I'm assuming Steve, you can probably buy, uh, from concept to screen to collectible there if, if you don't have it already. Assuming you still have copies. Unfortunately, it is oh, no. sold out. Wow. Oh no! What, what, what about well. the punishment cure? <laughs> <laughs> I, I still have a couple of copies. Of well, that. I, I'm going to get my autographed copy of that someday. I'm, that's that's my new collecting goal. Oh uh, my god! Yeah, there's still <laughs> well, some people who sell that on eBay. But well, you're, you're, if you're listening you're to this. Out. Your best bet is getting it on eBay. Okay. Yeah. Well, well. Yeah. If you're listening to this one, you should, you know, patronize uh, Rancho Obi Wan because it's it's great for the hobby and doing great things for the hobby. And two, you should try to find a copy of the book, even though Steve is out of them. Um, it's still out there, I'm sure. So it's yeah, definitely it something that should be in your collecting library. I, I, another thing to say too is that because the cover, because it's made by Chron, I think it's this is my theory, Steve. I could be wrong, but Chronicle is makes great design and they have they very. They're oh, very wow. smart and, and sleek, but they're not always as practical as they could be. So it doesn't say on the cover, Steve Sansweet. It doesn't say from screen to concept to collectible. It just has a picture of Darth Vader's head. And right. so there's more than one so, Star Wars book with Darth Vader's head on the cover. So if you see a big gold head, that's the book that you want. And this, uh, it, it has it on the, uh, on the spine, but um, I, I was amazed when I saw that too. And they, they just... They just said, "Okay, we we think we're gonna we're gonna try to do this." And then also, if you have a hardcover book, in, in, in they actually uh, did a small version of the cover in gold foil on the uh, hardcover uh, underneath the uh, underneath the oh, wow. uh, paper cover. I mean, so really nice. I mean, it's interesting for the time. I mean, nowadays, I think it seems kind of kooky just to have no title and a Darth Vader image on the front, but. Again, at the time, I don't think people realized there was nothing, there was not much Star Wars related on bookstores, right. bookstore, right. bookstore yeah. shelves. So when you saw that, it was like, oh, a Star Wars book, you know? So that's definitely probably what I first saw. And, and that's what they said. With the cover, with, if the cover was out, 
everybody's going to know it's a Star Wars book, and if the spine is out, it has what the name is. So mm-hmm. uh, yeah, right. that's how they explained it to me. And it, you know, it sold it sold very well, and uh, and I was uh, very happy with it, and um, and how it came out, and I think it. For its time, it it still holds up all these years later. So oh no, it definitely does. It certainly does, and that's why we had to do the what is this the sixteenth anniversary? I, I know it's not the right year. But we just finally got around to doing this. <laughs> but when it when it hits the the official uh, anniversary dates, we'll mention it again. But sounds good. We, we go pretty slow now, Steve. We ha- uh, we haven't done our lightning round questions. Are you are you ready to receive the lightning round questions from the Kivecast? I'm not sure. But- Let's okay. try it. So be it. All right. Well, the thing is, I, I know that you're that you're a movie fan, so you might be able to answer this one. What's your favorite bad line from a Star Wars movie? Uh, and mine is, "Pilot, please uh, land over there in that assembly area." Um, do you have a favorite bad line? Anything that Rick Oley said. Okay. <laughs> that little droid did it. <laughs> Wow, Ron, an unexpected Rick Oley line. <laughs> Very good. Uh, okay, boy, gee, I, I don't know if it's even fair to ask him the burning house question. I, I don't know. If you had to grab one item, would you be able to, and what would it be? It would be the um, banner that was uh, painted for oh, yeah. the 1976 San Diego Comic-Con and yeah. Worldcon using Ralph McQuarrie's Starkiller image and this incredible logo that was done by the guy who did the poster for Endless mm-hmm. Summer. Wow, um, that's a fantastic piece. Jeez. It, it ties... It ties Lucasfilm. It shows Lucasfilm being aware of fandom a year before the movie came out, when other studios didn't give a shit, didn't even have movies that would appeal to mm-hmm. to younger people or you know, the sci-fi crowd or the fantasy crowd, and 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 ties it to what I did for 15 years at Lucasfilm, and I think that's probably my favorite piece. Wow, that's, yeah, awesome. that's a good answer. Yeah, mm-hmm. that that's a that's a oh actually there's one more question too. You also mentioned that Kenner went to Toy Fair no Lucasfilm went to Toy Fair seventy seven to figure out if anyone would license it. Has has any pictures survived from Toy Fair seventy seven with what they brought to Toy Fair? Not that I have seen. Okay. Um, I, I imagine they would have brought you know some of the black and whites from the the set that I mean they had actually sent out. Um, photos uh to the major toy companies and praises of the script and things like that um you know right around toy fair and right after toy fair and um and um of course migo denies throwing them out but uh, i've got <laughs> i've got two guys who say we were forcefully ex- uh, uh, uh led to the exit <laughs> So, uh, yeah, that could be uh, whatever, yeah, whatever. And then the, the last question is the most philosophical and and is may take a little second to answer, but if you were a vintage Star Wars, a piece of vintage Star Wars memorabilia, not, not what would you like to be, but what do you actually think you would be if you were a vintage a piece of vintage Star Wars memorabilia? 
That is the weirdest question. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you, well, you, you know who gave the best answer? Aime gave the best answer. Aime said he would be a, uh, a, a rebel transport because he's hollow inside. It was the saddest thing. That we, were, we were there in Tokyo. I was in Tokyo asking him the question. Uh, I know you've worked with him a lot. And, and that was his answer. So no one's ever going to do better than that. So that's the uh, high bar. I think I would be a first sculpt Ewok. Because I love the Ewoks, and so many people don't. <laughs> and so I would be proud to be an early version of an Ewok. Spoken like a man who showed up at Celebration on the stage dressed as an Ewok. <laughs> exactly, exactly spoken like that. I, I can tell you, as someone with two kids, uh, Ewoks are the greatest thing from Star Wars, because that's what gets kids into Star Wars. And whether it's Lego or Kenner or whatever it is, Ewoks are absolutely the greatest. Except I just bought a plush Ewok on sale from Christmas, and it has two buck teeth in the front along with its cane, and it is the ugliest <laughs> I have ever seen. And Ann said, why did you buy it? And I said, why? Because it's so awful. It's not obvious. <laughs> It's like when you first start out collecting, Steve, you're looking for all the, the really nice stuff. And then when you get really into it, all of a sudden you're like you're buying all the really ugly and weird stuff. This is a man who has six different cans, as I said, of Hungarian Star Wars niblet corn with different Force <laughs> Awakens labels on them. That's the best part of Rancho Obi-Wan for me. Is just uh, <laughs> There never fails. There's something never completely know. off the wall. <laughs> And it always changes, and we're constantly changing, and uh, and uh, trying to add, and uh, yeah, we've got lots of uh, lots of good things coming up. Well, it's funny because even you saying that, then that makes me want to ask you another question because I didn't realize the whole fight between Lucasfilm and Kenner about plush toys that Kenner didn't think they could do it well, and that's another thing that's in your books. I feel like we could just talk to you all night, Steve. I, I feel like I, sh I should. We just need to stop at some point, but people need to go out and get the book and go to Rancho Obi Wan. I think that's the. Uh... Well, let's do this again sometime and yeah. talk about some more specific things. I would absolutely. Love to well, thanks, Steve. Time. This was awesome. I mean, we've been talking about it since uh, Seattle a few years back, so I'm right. glad that we finally did it. I am too. Yeah, and it's all because uh, Steve won. Uh, Steve Steve Danley's microphone broke. I'm like, well, we we have to do something this month. So I'm like, I finally get around to doing it, but uh, but he's here to join the other Steve, so that's good. Oh, that was. Uh, I don't think you needed me. It was just fun to to kind of to listen. Yeah, you were. Yeah, you, you were sort of in a trance, Stephen. Sky <laughs> and I are such big fat blabbermouths. <laughs> yes. Sometimes, when, whenever he has me on, I feel like I, I minimize Steve Danley, which, which is uh, annoying to me because Steve Danley is essential to the podcast. I think. Yes. Well, he's the star, so he gets <laughs> pretty <way>. much. <laughs> he's a nice guy to hear, jerk. He, we yes. had we had a wonderful, wonderful visit with the yeah. California oh, Vintage Five. Yeah. It was about twice the size of the first one, I think. I mean, that was the biggest. I mean, I think Anne was a little nervous getting so many of us <laughs> in there, uh, and that was the first time she'd cooked like two things of brisket. So I mean, it was. Uh, <laughs> was that the best ever? It was amazing. Oh, my yeah. God. Uh, yeah, Anne's Texicali. Brisket is like I mean this is this is a special tour guys that we do for nuts. big groups, and, yeah for nuts um, and um, and you know we add on Anne's uh, Anne's homemade brisket and cornbread and beans oh, wow. and 
Oh, it's like my two just... two favorite things in one day <laughs> over like a six hour period. I was just yeah. I don't know. Six. I couldn't get you guys out for eight. <laughs> Maybe it might have been. Yeah. That's that's being generous. No, we was... So hey, the first time you had me there, Steve, I think we were oh geez, three in the morning or something. We were yep. we were up real late that <laughs> yep. night. And then the next day and yeah, it was fun. Yeah. It's great. You know, I love I love doing it with uh, fellow collectors. And I also love doing it with people who just have the faintest idea what they're coming into, and um, and there are therefore a couple of major reveals in the museum that you don't know what's coming, and just when your energy is sort of sagging, will he ever shut up? Then there's another big reveal. <laughs> so it's uh, it's great fun for me to watch people and and to get the reaction and and sometimes get very surprised by people who have been quiet the whole tour and then at the very end are just effusive. And of course I also do relationship counseling <laughs> because I, I hear honey, as long as you don't get this crazy, I guess I can live with what you have. <laughs> well, after you bought all those collections that were broken up by divorce, I guess you have a lot of experience with that. <laughs> I do indeed. I do indeed. Uh, awesome. Cool. Well, we, we will uh, find another good reason to, to have you on, Steve. Thank you for your time. And, and thank you for uh, being the – writing this book that – I mean, this confirms the, the thesis that I came in with as being sort of the, the beginning of the vintage hobby. It really does seem like this is it. This is the, the alpha of the whole hobby. So, Well, it's nice to hear you say pleasant things about it because I've also had people blame me oh. for starting them out. I could have had a lot of money in my life, but your damn yeah. book ruined it. Yeah, page no. 93. That, that's what I think I'm going to call uh, Ron's, Ron's generation of collectors, the page 93 collectors, because that's where the, the Luke Hoth layout is with all the sculpt and the hard copy and the yeah, squeezings. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds good to me. All right, cool. Thanks a lot, Steve. Okay, guys, thank right. you very much. It's right. been a pleasure. Good night. All right, have a good one. Hey, all right. So that was I'm, awesome. now, yeah. I'm now back with uh, with Ron and and Steve, uh, the real Steve, not Steve Sansweet. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was so awesome. Yeah, I mean, I knew it would be. I mean, Steve's you know he's a great talker. He he has tons of great stories. So. He just knows how to tell a story. It's, yeah, yeah, it's the same with the book. But I just didn't. I, I, I thought it would go well. I just didn't think it would go that well. I, I'm so happy that that he was like, like totally opened all the questions and like he understood the sort of the angle and. Yeah, I mean, one of the reasons Steve Sansweet's such a treasure to the hobby and has been for a long time is he's just a good guy and you know he, he's a smart guy too and I, like Steve Danley said, I mean he's great with a story and. Uh, he has, a, I think, a great sense of, you know, how to structure things, you know, as a writer and when he talks, and and he's just really generous too. So I mean, I, I'm not and, surprised and, he gave you that much. We should have had him on the ethics episode because that that's awesome. <laughs> that's so cool. The idea that he knew he could have asked to buy all the prototypes, but it, it's like it's just like you just don't do that. You know, well, like he, I know I, I know that story. Like, so I, I guess I cheated a bit because Steve, we had talked about this before, Steve and I. But um, also when. 
you know, pe- me and some other guys around Cincinnati buying stuff, people would sometimes tell us that Steve Sansu was out there, and, you know, and they're like, oh, you know, he didn't really offer me anything. <laughs> I just remember sitting there thinking, I was like, well, yeah, I mean, he's there, it's work, you know, it would be weird for him to try to buy this stuff from you. Um, but yeah, I mean, what Steve said is sort of accurate, you know, he did that stuff, and a few years later, other people bought it, which right. is kind of interesting. And I'm sure, you know, he's a collector like anyone else, I'm sure. You know, part of him wishes he had he had had that stuff. But the thing is, is like sort of karmically speaking, he wouldn't be in the position he's in of being like the sort of patriarch of Star Wars collecting if he didn't have those ethics. I think, like, if you weren't such a good person, I don't yeah, think he would yeah. have made it so far in the world. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I think you're saying, in other words, kind of what I was saying, just like you know, part part of the reason he's been around so long and that people like him so much is that he's he's a good guy. Right. So, so just th- that goes for you, Steve. So you continue to be a good person, and eventually, good things will happen for you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Danley has some work to do on the good person stuff. We'll, we'll see. We'll get there. <laughs> that was. Do you know how hard that was to have such a long interview without me being able to say Steve and have it be referring to you, Steve? That was. I, in- I, I was internalizing that. Like I'm just. That may not almost made it easy for me to just stay like my old self and completely silent because it just it just would completely throw it off because I literally had no idea how to address you because I, I wasn't going to be like hey Danley like I'm so like uh, you should have just called me Daniels like, you know? yeah like a, a middle school job anyway. alright guys well unless you need more from me I guess no. that's that's all she wrote alright sounds good alright Steve so we just finished recording the intro. We just list, finished listening to uh, the interview with Steve Sansweet. Um, now let's just throw on this little bit of discussion with Chris Jogulius to talk about what's happening now. And this is kind of like in the news because a couple things happened that are, are big deals. And uh, so that's just going to be me and then you're going to join later, Steve. Because we're jumping all around in time. We're like George Lucas here, you know? <laughs> episode one, before episode three, all that stuff. So yes. uh, let's talk to Chris Jogulius all about what is Blue Harvest and what in the world is a double-donged Boba Fett. Mm, something tells me that that's a sky term. The double-donger? <laughs> Everyone's not calling it the double-donger Fett? <laughs> no? Well, they might now. Well, you know, speaking of bad words, I got a text from Ron encouraging me to leave the one swear word that uh, Steve Sansweet <laughs> said in the uh, podcast. I, I was wondering uh, how, how you might react to that. Well, I think I might leave it in. I, I, I left in one swear from Derek Ho, I believe. I, I think that's the only other swear I've ever left in. But I, Did you believe? I think I must have had one, like, way back. Oh, yeah, you've had a bunch. Oh, every episode. Right. You guys who listen don't know. He just... Oh, uh, it's it's just... They're, mo- it's they're mostly racial slurs, which is weird. Um, but I edit them out like, all the time. Wow. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, well, then, uh, let's listen to Christian Julius. All right, Chris. Well, before Steve actually makes it here, uh, and before uh, anything else goes on with the show, uh, you know, we've got these three topics we're going to discuss with you. And the first is the one I think I understand the least. Um, my trademark is still the stupidity, trademark is stupidity, and I don't understand. The thing is, okay, so I actually 
I think, you know, I, I bought a head test pull thing and I, I saw the things that Ross Barr had, the Beehive Han, like I held it in my hand at a New York meeting, but I don't actually understand anything that's going on. So what is this Klimco sale? What does it all mean, Chris? What does it all mean? Well, <laughs> I guess that for, that's the name of the seller on eBay. Okay. And, uh, you know, his, his round of sales in December really what got everybody's attention. Okay. He is a ex-Kenner sculptor, as he noted, notes in his, um, in his listings. And, and, and you, you can confirm that he was an ex-Kenner sculptor? I can confirm because we bought stuff from him 15 years ago. Okay. <laughs> and uh, nine, seven years ago also. So it's these guys, you know, they, they have stuff and once in a while they run across another box of little things. And uh, this time he, he took full advantage of the, the hype in December for Star Wars. He couldn't have picked a better time and basically listed a lot of little, um, they were like head pull tests, um, basically a first shot like a torso and a head. In most cases, um, usually in odd colors, not painted. There's a few that were painted, but pretty much it was just torso and the head. Some of the torsos, he had loose torsos um, that were not welded, not sonic welded. So anyway, a good variety of things, and he was a solid source, and, and it was it was public. And so he started the bidding, and he, he said that if – and he, to discourage sniping, okay. which was interesting, he's – he said, "If your if your winning bid is placed like 24 hours before the auction's over, he would throw in some extra things." So wow. he was trying to get people. To I didn't hear that bid. part. You didn't hear that no. part yet. So I mean, it was in his listings. He probably had I don't know 20 things. So anyway, so that drove a lot of stuff. So and right now, you know, with with it was like all all the stars were aligned for him, you know, and and the fever pitch, you know, to get like prototype pieces, especially direct from the source, you know, people were just going nuts and the bids were tremendous. You know, I mean, people were paying thousands of dollars for things that only a few years ago would have sold you, you know, maybe for a, a few hundred dollars. But, but do you have an, an example from the Klimco sales that would, of something that sold for thousands that usually sells for a hundred? Oh, yes, actually. I'm going to kind of cheat because I had saved his auctions. Of course you did, Chris. You you saved everything. <laughs> <laughs> well, what, he he had – oh, here's something. He had a lot of paperwork. Okay. Paperwork. I forget how many pages. It was like less than 20 pages. Um, Kenner envelope, just letterhead, you know, some handwritten things from Kenner. Sold for $2,500. Wow. $2,500. Uh there's a, pr a first shot head for Luke Jedi sold for nine, almost $900. A General Maydine, the, the torso is like an opaque plastic torso with a painted head, sold for twelve sixty. Wow, and so that was probably just a, a, a testing thing for a, like a, a test for the head pull to see if the head would come off most likely? Or do you think it was an actual That's first shot or – um, it is a first shot. It's just that those at the time were earmarked for that particular thing, so that it didn't have, it didn't need all the um, the legs, it didn't need the limbs assembled. It just needed the head on the torso. So they were testing it out. I guess the 
the the neck pin size and then likely uh, likewise with the the hole in the head so that that would get a good snap fit and you know would withstand being pulled on under some force you know i don't know what force they would pull on it to see what it took to either break it or uh to pull it off but so you know they, they, they would run those in the molds and just run a bunch of pieces and then send them out to kenner and have those things tested and he had loads and loads i mean he had lots of them 15 years ago he's got he had more in december he's got more currently so there i mean there's a whole new round of auctions he did so well in his auctions in december that paypal shut his account down wow. because they thought something shady was going on i mean it was uh and he had superpowers care bears um he had a couple he had hard copy just a head and a torso it was sort of like an after the fact made hard copy okay for Hoth. it sold for 96 97 9766 9, okay so it wasn't actually a hard copy uh it was a hard copy it was like you know, one of these spares, you know, lots of hard copy stars, but it was just the torso and the head. Right. And it was not finished. It was like made after the fact. It had little nub pins sort of molded into it. It wasn't a finished hard copy that you would pin together with steel pins. It was sort of made, you know, a lot of like sort of like a throwaway piece. And, um, you know, and they did that lots of times back then. Sometimes they would just run some extras if they had enough material right and sometimes they make something just to keep so some just because these guys had something didn't mean it was actually part of the process you know sometimes you know they would make a, make a spare for for you know they're just for, for posterity's sake i think some of the stuff he had like that was made after the fact some of these guys would make like an extra copy of something just to have to base some future piece on so they could be that much farther ahead you know right so anyway, on and on. I mean, he had a rose petal place character hard copy sold for eight hundred dollars. I don't even know what rose petal place is. So there you go. <laughs> it's like a girl's toy line, you know, sort of like around the time of strawberry shortcake. Right. Uh, and on and on. I could go on and on, but I mean, he had some things that were like clearly just like wax castings. They were not sculpted. They were just poured castings, but they were in wax versus say uh, Dynacast or some other material. Okay. I mean. Those sold for, I mean, he sold for uh, a superpowers one for north of nine thousand dollars. So, I mean, most of those head pull tests were in the thousand to plus range. So, anyway, I can go on piece by piece. Yeah, but you get the idea. Well, just to, I mean, as far as the the head the head test pull. I mean, those toys did work. It was really hard to pull the heads off. So it's kind of kind of a, yeah. a neat piece of history. Um, sure. I've been looking for years for a Chewbacca head test pull, but I haven't found one, Chris. I don't know why. Have, have you been able to it, find one ever? It's rough, you know. <laughs> I mean, I think they broke the equipment trying to pull the head off of the Porsche. I think so, yeah. I think, yeah. <laughs> now, is there anything – so then there's nothing really shady about what it is. It's just that people are paying prices that are maybe not commensurate with the actual – it's sort of like uh, sort of like we'll be discussing with the Blue Harvest pieces. It's not that they're bad pieces. It's just that the prices have gone so crazy. Well, I would say the demand is is to the point where these that's what the prices are. You know, some of these you you could argue that they're you know few of a kind in the in the world. So it's like, well, 
is it crazy then for that torso head combination to sell for $1,400 when nowadays a vinyl cape Jawa on the card has sold for $10,000, right. $12,000, and those are much more plentiful. Right. So it's like collecting anything, I guess. You know, I was shocked at the prices, but it's just it was like like I said, the stars aligned, the demand was there, the the the, the notoriety was there. And so, and so probably the the closest I came to it, you know, was I was hanging out at, at Yehuda's yeah. house during the most recent uh, time I was hanging out there, and and Ross Barr brought by the Han Solo with the weird. Um, stuff on his head and looked like he looked kind of like Marge Simpson. So then, where does that fit into what is the theory on that? Because he told me, but I probably had too many jalapeno poppers and cognac uh, to remember. Oh, right. <laughs> so, what was that trip, huh? Yeah. So, it was one of them. <laughs> so, this sculptor, he sculpted the, the Han um, Carbonite figure, the, the action figure, I think. And he worked, I guess it was both pieces, because way back in the day, he had an alternate sculpt of the carbonite block. Wow. And um, so this was a piece, it was just the torso and a head sort of cast together, a wax cast. And he had sort of sculpted a sort of, you know, 50s beehive Marge Simpson hair on top of it, just as a, a gag, you know, just a goofing around thing. Had nothing to do with anything except that he was at Kenner. You know, he worked doing Kenner stuff, and he wasn't always at Kenner. He was outsourced, right. and I'm not sure. He said he worked on site some, but I think a lot of stuff he did is when he was uh, freelance and outsourced for Kenner. Anyway, so there's no disputing it was done about the right time, but it had nothing to do with Han. You know, it could have been it could have taken a superpowers figure and done the same thing and had much less interest in it. Right. So it was but, it was just kind of goofing around, not not actually a part of the production process. That's correct. Okay. But it's goofing around by the guy who actually made it. So it, it sort of has it's cool in its own way. Okay. It's relevant. Yeah. You know, is it cool for Yeah. So Ross thought it was cool enough to buy it, you know, and he put in his bid early and you know, he got a a freebie, you know, so, you know, he's posted about that, I think, publicly. And, right. and you know, he got a, you know, I think it was a Luke Hoff wax casting. But now, now, Klimko's selling one of those. <laughs> so Right. So he's, you know, he's selling more. So He's selling more. Yeah, he got a new, new round of first shot pieces he's found. And, um, you know, I don't think he'll do as well because, you know, there was a lot of hype then, but, but a lot of the same people are seeing this, you know. And a lot of people who bid these up, all of a sudden now, you had two people going after the same thing. Now, what would a second one com command, you know? Right. And, and I'm sure people are thinking, well, how many more does he have? Because it's possible, you know, with these first shots, you know, he they have bags of them, you know. You know, he had, 15 years ago, had quite a number of these things. And, you know, just now in the past couple of months, even more, you know, and these wax castings, you know, because they're not hand worked, you know, some of them that are just castings are just things they poured. So right, so they um, would have just poured it into the mold that they had there and just taken from that. Okay, right, yeah, right, and not not necessarily part. You know, like I said, some of these guys they made things just to have for for reference later. You know, if you needed like a male torso or part of a male figure about that proportion, heck, you'd have that that one already sculpted to that point, you know, right. created to that point, and you could tweak it from there. Wow. You know, so, I mean, Kenner reworked some of their original sculpts into other figures. A lot of people don't know that. And 
Oh, well, well, actually, uh, I've been working on Ron to to. He's going to put out a blog post about that, and he's got some bombshells to that to that effect coming up soon. So, oh, we're, okay. we're, well, I'll, I'll steal his thunder then. Yeah, I didn't know he was working on that. Yeah, well, maybe this will will uh, will will spark the fire from to actually make that uh, that post. Um, wow. So he can make it, and it'll be amazing. But hey, let's move on to talking about the Blue Harvest. Okay, sounds good. It's been way too long since we've had you on, Chris. It has been a while, hasn't it? Yeah, I, I sent the email to you today, and I said, we need vitamin G. That's uh... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that was clever. But I think it would be a really good time, first of all, to talk about Blue Harvest. Do you know why I'm asking about Blue Harvest, Chris? Uh, could it have anything to do with eBay? Yes. So uh, did you see that a whole bunch of Blue Harvest pieces went up on eBay? I think I just told you that. Yes, you did. <laughs> <laughs> you see, that's why we miss having you. We need someone from North Carolina just to, to give me hell because that's uh, that's what that good state is for. Um, right. No, no, you're right. I'm well <laughs> familiar with those uh, with those items. Yeah, so it was this guy. Um, I think he's a, a Pez seller. His name was like Pez Dude or something. And an, A Pez author. A Pez, what, what do you mean a Pez author? Well, and his and he he wrote this like definitive or a definitive book on Pez. Uh, it's written in his um, auction descriptions at the bottom, just sort of saying you know, he had been a a dealer for thirty years, and he wrote this book in the nineties on Pez collecting. Wow, so that's his claim to fame. That's where the Pez comes from. He sells a lot of neat. He's a lot of neat things uh, in his listings. You know, I, I think I might actually have that book because I actually collected Pez before I collected Star Wars, Chris. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I think it's David Welch is the name okay. of it. Okay. Wow, that, that's funny because I've been emailing him back and forth and I've been trying to be respectful because he doesn't seem like he's trying to scam anybody. Um, but the, the, the wording is this. Um, so just as an example, we'll go with the one that I paid attention to, which is a – four up of uh, Chewbacca in the, the torture chamber, unproduced torture chamber set. Um, this is where you can correct me if it's actually a different set. That, it was a torture chamber set, right, Chris? That one, that's correct. All right, I got one right. Take that, North Carolina. Uh, so it's, <laughs> its listing is Kenner ROG space test shot four up prototype action figure Chewbacca C-3PO. And uh, I just sort of contacted him and said, you know, it shouldn't be listed as a prototype. And then he sort of said, well, yeah, it can be because I don't say it's original. And we kind of went back and forth. And he basically told me in a nice way that he's just going to keep doing what he wants. Um, so if it is a Blue Harvest piece, which it is, what does that mean? What is the history of the Blue Harvest uh, prototype scandal? Scandal? Oh man! Is it not a scandal? Well, I thought uh, it was a scandal. It, yeah, yeah, it's funny too because it's it's grown as uh, I'm trying to find his listing now to see. I have, um, I had it bookmarked. Well, that's fine. Actually, he, um, I, I guess we could go into it. He's actually, you know, for the crazy prices on here, you know, he he lists things and then he relists them at a lower cost. But he sold the power droid. For eighteen hundred dollars? No way. Yeah, and that would be from the dungeon, um, the Jabba dungeon set, and it was a blue harvest four up. And 
I'm sure the reason it sold is because these Blue Harvest pieces have sort of gained collector notoriety in the past, I want to say, 10 years or so. Um, you know, they first came to light in the mid-90s, a little late. Uh, yeah, about mid-95, about 96, yeah, 95 actually, 96, um, right around there. And um, I think it was Steve Denny, actually, the man, the myth, the legend, that told me about them originally because he was uh, tracking down Kenner people and he got invited to this guy's house and on the dining room table the guy's like, yeah, I've had all these and Steve is like thinking to himself, these look, these don't look good, something's wrong here and he like said thanks, you know, I'm not, not, I'm not really interested in these and, and, and let it go at that. Right, so, and, so, uh, so what he thought he saw were, or what he was being told he was seeing were four up prototypes, so the prototypes for micro collection figures, mostly the unproduced sets at four times their normal size, and they should be in uh, in what Dynacast usually is that right, Chris? Uh, right. So I guess I should yeah. If, if we're going to go all the way to that, what they are, yes, four up. So so the micro collection was sculpted at four to one size. So most of these pieces that you see are anywhere from like four to six inches or so tall. They were sculpted at that size and sort of prototyped. So the wax sculpting would have been made or acetate sculpting, and then they would have made a silicon mold and made um, hard copies from that in what you said is Dynacast material. Typically, it was those. Um, it was the green Dynacast, which is the their hard copy material of choice at the time. Um, I have seen some in the brown, that Carbolon material. Um, but this blue stuff was was really new, and Steve knew enough. He's like, these don't look right. Well, we were right because what he saw was a whole bunch of blue-looking prototypes. He knew that's not the right color. That's so. right. They were all blue. A whole table full of them. He knew okay, it's the wrong color, and there's way too many of these in one person's spot <laughs> place. And they looked new. They were sort of like as cast and not all finished, you know, and, and sort of cleaned up. So yeah, so these blue things were there on the on the scene, and you know they slowly dispersed into the marketplace, being sold as authentic prototypes. I think some uh, several dealers at the time were buying them. Um, one of the stories was well, they went the Kenner went back to the molds and was cranking things out just to sort of get ideas for revamping the Star Wars line, which is right around the time that you know the the uh, that Kenner re-released, uh, sort of, did their nine new action figures. The POF 2 line was born. The classic four-pack, which was, you know, the um, the vintage, the, the, those were the recasts of the vintage, the four vintage figures. Right. And so this was sort of all in that time frame. And these were made at Kenner by some person or persons at Kenner. And... With the mold, because the molds, the original molds were still there in the basement. So they had access to the molds. They had access to this hard copy material. What they didn't realize was that they didn't start using this blue material until I think 89 or 88. So it was after the vintage years. So that was the easy way to know, okay, these aren't original because Kenner didn't start using the material until after the fact. Right. So. 
So, so basically, these things have been circling around the hobby for whatever, 15, 20 years. 20, right? Yeah, like 20 years now. You know, they're almost, you know, sort of antique, vintage, you know, just by just in some year. You know, some people, you know, 20 years old is that makes them kind of old for, for these toys. Now, they weren't just the four ups. They're actually action figure pieces as well that were found. Um all made sort of at the same time. And, you know, we've run across that too. Arms and legs and, and complete figures, things that were sort of finished and drilled and, and put together nicely. Um, some of the, the, the better famous ones are the, the 8D8 and the EV99, which were uh, for the action figure line. Those two figures were sculpted at two to one size. So this was like the first time we'd ever seen a, that we knew that these things existed at, at this scale. So they're pretty impressive to see those figures twice as, twice as large as normal. And usually all the ones that had turned up were all finished very nicely. Right. They, they were pinned together. They, they ate the part, the, the arms and legs were, the pins were, were part of the sculpting. So they were all, they fit together nicely. And that was, even at the time, you know, those things were selling for anywhere from like, I'd say Three to six hundred dollars. I mean, lots of them were selling for five hundred bucks right. because and, that was the only way to get that. Right, and an authentic one would sell for six hundred. So th these were made to, de no, to no, deceive. No, they weren't authentic. The, I'm saying that the Blue Harvest eight D eight and EV ninety nine were selling for that. Oh, much. really? Wow. Blue Harvest was because it wasn't until years later that that some authentic hard copies of those two actually turned up. Right. Um. So and then there were painted ones like I have uh painted eight D eight. That was supposedly like made as like 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 a sample to like a, a display piece to show like it, it sort of went along with the story that they were trying to to rehash some of these things in the '90s just to get some ideas around. Right. And it was gorgeously painted, but it's one of the blue ones. Right. Huh. Well, I, I don't. It's always. So I saw this and I kind of contacted the guy and he was a little bit standoffish and he was trying to say that because he doesn't use the word original, it's not misleading to call them prototypes. But it is misleading to call it a prototype if it wasn't actually used as a prototype, right? Well, you know, a lot of people on eBay probably beg to differ on that. I think the problem with him is that he really didn't know what these were and he bought these from – Tomart Publications, and at the time, they were heavily invested into these pieces, and they didn't know what they were. And then when, when people were confronting them with the fact that, hey, these things were made later, they always maintained, no, 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 they're original, they're original. But And they had shown them in their magazines, Action Figure Digest. Well, when they did their um, hardcover version of their Star Wars Collectibles price guide, the hardcover version had a whole section in the back that had um, – about 20 pages, 20 color pages of prototypes. Well, they went and showed those blue four-ups, but they colorized them to make them look sort of like dingy gray-green. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So it was like, wait a minute. Oh, wow, that's sketchy. You're gonna sell it. First, you're going to say that they're real, and then when you show the picture of them, you're going to colorize them. So that was like – that was just bad. That was just bad. And, you know, when they went and sold there, they started selling off their – um, their collection of stuff. They had a ton. I went to their place a couple times. They had an enormous collection um, 
of all kinds of toys, and they had several cases of Star Wars and a lot of real things, you know, authentic pieces. Right. But they have those blue things, and like I said, they were sort of heavily invested in that, and they didn't want to really want to relent on the fact that no, no, they were good. So they were moved along, and you know, I think this guy, this seller now, he bought a bunch of those pieces. Um, his price was more or less justified on one auction. I think um, he's had some other ones. I think he, he probably made a side deal on some. So even though they're not original, they because they were Kenner made, right? And they're of like unproduced toys and things. That there's a collect like there's enough there's enough collectors out there willing to know that and still pay a certain amount of money. Um, wow. And. So and it could be hundreds, you know. If collectors are selling them to each other for for decent amounts. I was surprised to see that one sell for eighteen hundred. Yeah, that just shows that people are dying to get anything nowadays, even even something like this. Oh. So Blue Harvest came. We I think I can't remember who named that. I could swear I thought it was me on the uh, early forum days. We were trying to think of a name of it. Just said it was a clever play on words. Yeah. And uh, and that you know. That that stuck and and you know it's, there's quite a mystique now and sort of admiration almost uh, of, of these to some degree you know but then there was also a group of guys out of Cincinnati that were making fakes of these and those have no those uh, those were made by a bunch of some guys that called themselves basement bounty hunters some of these pieces you'll find in really weird colors um, the details are. Yeah, that can be mold. That can be a little bit um, washed out, and uh, because they made their own molds off of Blue Harvest pieces, and in a few cases they made their molds off of original pieces. But they made these fake forups, and they sold them, you know, for pre for low values and stuff. Uh, lots of them around Ohio, the collectors meets down there, there the Ohio Collectors Club, and they some of them say BBH on the bottom. Right. And um, those are definitely fakes and those, you know, and, but they don't have zero value because people would buy them just to have a display piece, you know. Right. Yeah, I, I, I have one <laughs> in my collection and it's, uh, it's, it's pretty nice. Awesome. Well, listen, uh, Steve just texted me actually 10 minutes ago to say he's ready to talk. So I'm, I'm going to call you back and we're going to talk about the double donger fet, okay? Sounds great. All right. Okay, so if you're listening to the episode, you've been hearing Steve and I talk for the last hour or so, but we're just, uh, Steve just got in from the, uh, the Academy. Steve, were you polishing your Oscar? <laughs> no, no. I, I don't get none of those. No. <laughs> um, so, uh, we just talked about Blue Harvest with Chris. I don't think we're going to get to the oh, okay. third topic, but, uh, so w- what actually happened? Okay, so, um, in December, there was um, the the a few of the the Cincinnati collectors were working with the library there. They wanted to do something to commemorate Kenner. So Dan Flarida and Josh Blake and the guys over at KennerCollector.com they helped set up a, a display out there, working with the library, researching old photos and things, and had a, had a full day um, a Kenner symposium. Brian Stillman was there. He showed his Plastic Galaxy documentary. Yep. Unfortunately, I couldn't make it. 
I had prior engagement, so I, I missed out on that. But um, it was a really good event. It was like on a Saturday, and um, it was the kickoff of a, 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 a exhibition or display that would stay there for some time. I forget how many months, but you know, it spanned every decade of Kenner and showing various toys and things. They had people from the toy company there, you know, telling stories and whatnot. But so there was a guy there. Turns out this quality engineer, former quality engineer, was there and mentioned to a few people that he had a rocket firing Boba Fett. And um, one of the guys there, Daryl Johnson, he approached him, said, Hey, I'm really interested in this piece. And that was in mid December. And I'd say a couple of weeks ago, they finalized their deal and he went to Cincinnati to pick up the piece. Um, he had seen photos on the on the guy's phone of it. He knew it was like a, a J slot rocket fet, which is sort of the last design iteration of that figure. It was like fully painted, looked like a production figure with dates and the right color, and the shape of the slot in the backpack was sort of a J shape, and that was to prevent sort of like misfiring from like knocking the firing pin right. to the side, which is how the original. Um, the L slot, we call them, Boba Fett's, those were designed. Anyway, so, and the guy had mentioned, you know, it's got a couple of missiles and, and a little box. And at the time, Daryl said he didn't really, it did, didn't really phase him because he wasn't thinking. He was just really excited to get the, get the, the, the Rock Fair Boba, um, just to get the Fett itself. Right. And um, so he had talked to some other people. I think he was talking to Steve Dwyer a lot. And Steve had written me and, a couple of weeks ago, I said, "Hey, have you ever heard of one of these in a in a mailer box?" And I was like, "No, no, no such thing." Well, they sent sent the photos and said, "Hey, this thing turned up." And I was like, "Oh my gosh, two missiles!" I said, "That's how it was promoted." So I remember these. There was a um, like a catalog supplement that came out in early '79 that mentioned that it came with two two rockets, and this was just a plain mailer box. It was essentially the same mailer box that went out to 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 kids who 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 got the um, the figure via mail order, but this hanging had a little sample. The baggie was unmarked. Um, at the time when when Daryl got it, he showed it to some other Cincinnati collectors, and Bill Wills had confirmed, "Hey, I have a." He had a, a like an early mailer sample, um, a regular Boba Fett, and this had a similar, you know, box with no label and um, a similar unmarked baggie. Uh, the one that Daryl got was the baggie was open because the the guy the engineer had opened it, but he said you know the, he just kept it like that the whole time. So right, and so that was that was it, you know. And I was you know I was like man, that was really cool to see one in a sample state. Um, I know Daryl and Steve were very excited. There were a lot of people that were really really excited, and then the I, I mean I liked it, but you know I was like hey you know. The J slot fit turned up 22 years ago, right? <laughs> so it's not that was new. So it was nice to see that it was in a in a box like that. You know, it would have been really amazing if like the, it had a letter in it that said, "Here's how to operate the mechanism" or something. But it didn't have any paperwork in right. it. So yeah. um, I, I believe the story. You know, he said guy from the Kenner guy. Everybody, you know, he was there. And it made sense. So, but the way it was unveiled was sort of new. They spent 24 hours on Facebook 
saying the greatest thing in the world was coming up. So, it Gabo, Gabo, like, Gabo, Gabo, well, <laughs> well kind of like that. Yeah, sort of like, like, like took a cue from Disney, you know. Right. And um, yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> so they had a Force Friday, and then uh, everybody was jazzed up trying to guess what this could be, you know. And then on Saturday, you know, they unveiled what it was, and. There was quite a bit of commotion, and you know, I think a lot of people have never seen a rocket firing Boba Fett. It didn't seem like it, and you know, and it was it was it was great. I uh, yeah, it's it's a cool story, and and I had never actually picked up that it was going to be shipped with two rockets. I mean, was that just in a in a catalog they announced that, or why had I never seen that? Yeah, I mean, it, it was in those. It was it was in this uh, January February nineteen seventy nine supplement. It's like it was the first time that there was like. In the printed material that they advertise the the figure, right. you know, aside from the card backs, that's the only bit of marketing literature I'd seen. So I knew about that. I've had one of those forever, and um, yeah. So so that that was one thing that struck me as soon as he said it's two rockets. Like, oh yeah, well, that that that's how it was promoted. Right. Um, at least very early on, you know that that supplement I think was printed and you know and distributed back in August of seventy eight. So it had been out for a while because it was promoting uh, items that were going to come out in um, January, February, 79. And Toy Fair is in February. In fact, they just had Toy Fair this past weekend right. So um, in New York. Well, awesome. Well, I think well, the other thing, unfortunately, we don't have a ton of time here. But the one thing I would say is that it is cool seeing the sort of the way that it came about on Facebook, you know, which is kind of this new thing we've been discussing, new, whatever, 15 years old, but like the sort of new way that things are shared in the hobby. And then there was a huge demand that people make a rebel scum forum out of it so that the discussion would be archived. And then finally, Chris, you put it up on the archive itself so that it's like totally archived and completely safe and easily findable. And that kind of gives me hope in the future that discoveries like this, okay, maybe it won't ever be this big of a hype in the future, but it's cool that something new happened, we got to have the excitement, and then we also get to have the sort of the real sense of building history. So th thanks for writing that, and, and thanks to those guys for finding it and sharing it, because it's cool. It's, it's something new in our hobby. Yeah, you know, something I was just thinking about with the, the Facebook thing is, um, I, think, I can't remember who made the comment, but someone kind of likened it to uh, some of the craziness on the old archive, like chat chat room, which unfortunately I never really got to experience, but it kind of had that feeling to it in the sense of people just kind of going nuts on the fly. Right. Yeah, awesome. Well, listen, Chris, can we uh, contact you next month too? Can Can we have two months in a row of vitamin G? Sure thing. All right, man. you can't overdose on vitamin. You G. really can't, because because you have a, you have a lot more to say to us, and you're always the most vocal about us recording shows. Um, basically, every email I, feel I like send a... to Steve, uh, I send to him, Steve. He just goes, "Okay, good, get back to podcasting." So, <laughs> I think you might need a new a new uh, vitamin G drop for, for this maybe guy. the old Pokemon one is uh, is wearing thin. <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool. Uh, awesome, Chris. Well, then we will talk to you in episode 71, and thanks for coming on and uh, dropping some vocab on us. All right, guys. Uh, thanks, Chris. All right. Tell Steve I said – the other Steve I said All right, hi. Hey. Yeah. You know what? I like the players. No dickity, no doubt. Play on, play at. Play on, play at. 
Yo, Trey, drop the verse. Alright, Steve. Well, we're now ready to record the outro. Um, you're still recovering from me accusing you of spouting out racial slurs. You don't like that, huh? Well, I mean, I've already been called an animal abuser, so... <laughs> That's true. <laughs> And we've already established that if, if you're going to be a nice guy in the hobby, you have to work a little harder. Yeah, I know. I, I've got a lot uh, a lot of work to do. Yeah. <laughs> I'm seeking help, though, right? I mean, yeah. I, I can go back to see Sansweet's book. And... <laughs> so. Yeah. And I just love the idea that, that you know, that the book was taken down to Cincinnati by the, all the raiders, you know? <laughs> like, yeah. And just yeah. like... Hey, no. let's look up this guy. No, no, I, yeah, rereading it the last couple of days, I, I just didn't realize how many names are in the book. They're yeah. just, they're all over the place. Yeah. Uh, yep. Uh, and called, hey, what do you think of calling them the, the page 93? Is that too esoteric? I mean, I mean, when have we not been esoteric? I mean, Ron, <laughs> if you see the picture, it absolutely makes sense. Yeah, so... Because basically, it's in the concept screen to collectible book, and it it just shows the complete evolution of the sculpt of the Tauntaun. And I, I didn't really hammer it too hard, but the whole idea that like this is the book that informed that generation, and they right. and they care about three D stuff, and then like what I consider to be my generation, yeah, was so influenced by Kellerman, and then yeah. that's all two D stuff. Like it makes sense. So, like, what's the next, you know, what's going to be the next book? Who knows? I don't know. Maybe it'll be Joe's book, and it'll make the, the bootleg generation. I hope so. <laughs> so, uh, next month, we'll be back with uh, with Grant. We'll be talking about Thai pilots, and uh, we'll have some standard old, good old Kivecast fun. Uh, so, uh, uh, Wampa Wampa. Adios. <laughs> Cool. I like the way you work it. No diggity. I thought to bag it up. Bag it up.